Hi folks, this is Shakespeare. Go with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is March 7, 2014. This is episode 1315 of the Survival Podcast, and it's Friday, Friday, Friday. That's right. Time for your calls to 866-65-THINK. Again, 866-65-THINK. That number, for those of you who don't have letters on your phone pads or whatever, actually is 866-658-4465. If you call that number, you're not going to hear, Hi, this is uh, Jack Caller. You're on the air because this is a podcast. It's pre-recorded, distributed across the World Wide Web of the Internet. How long has it been since you heard that? The World Wide Web. That sounds like 1999, but it's... 2014 and the uh, world marches on and we've got a lot to talk about today. Um, if you do want to call in for a show like this, it's important you follow a few procedures. One, please know what you're going to say and what you're going to ask before you make the call. So you don't, you know, call in and go, uh, uh, click. Uh, just, just know what you're going to say. And that way you can have your question or point, maybe even written down. I don't know if you need to do that. Some people don't. Some people it might help. Just have it prepared so that you can immediately say, my question is, or my statement is, and then give me the details following it. It will flow much better. You'll be more likely to get through the screening process and get on the air because i got lots of calls and I cannot do them all. If you want to call for our expert counsel, when you call, say, hi, Jack, this is uh, so-and-so. My call is for expert counsel member, fill in the blank with their names, and then tell me your question and, and then just hang the phone up and I'll get the email. Uh, with the attachment. But if you want to make sure your call gets to your expert counsel member, as soon as you're done with that, email me, Jack, at the survivalpodcast.com. Put expert counsel call in the subject line and say, Hi, Jack. I just called in an expert counsel call for council member name and I called from phone number, whatever. If you give me your phone number, it's a lot easier for me to find it. If you call me, I already have your phone number, so don't worry about giving it to me. I'm not going to call you back or bother you anyway. All right. With that, I am ready to get into the show today. Uh, before we get into the main topic and your calls, let's take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day, number one today, BulkAmmo.com. If you have a gun and you have no ammo, you have a really expensive club. That's all you have. A gun is not a gun unless there's ammunition to go in it. The police may not agree with that if you live in a state that doesn't recognize your freedom to own and keep a firearm, but I think you should for yourself. You have a tube, a big made out of steel, with some cool functioning parts, it looks neat. But it does absolutely nothing as a gun other than maybe, I don't know, you could maybe scare somebody with it if they're, you know, not of the knowledge that you're not, you know, loaded up for bear, so to speak. But it's also a good way to get yourself killed. So I wouldn't do that. You want to have that gun be effective. You need ammo. You need lots of it so you can train with your weapon as well. To do that, check out BulkAmmo.com for great pricing and a great ammo selection with lightning-fast shipping, by the way. Next up today is Save Castle Royal, the original survival podcast sponsor. When there were no sponsors, there was Save Castle going, hey, we want to be your sponsor. And Jack going, uh, hey, uh, I don't have enough listeners yet, and I don't want to take you as a sponsor if I can't actually help you yet, so let me let me figure this out. So I did figure it out, and I did build a listener base up, and SafeCastle was still there, and when I opened up sponsorship, they were the first people to step up. They've been with us for over five years now. 
most podcasts don't last five years, let alone five years of a relationship with a sponsor on a podcast. They've been loyal to us, so be loyal to them. They have everything you can think of for your prepping needs. You can find them at prepared.pro. That's one way to find them, or safecastle.com. Uh, uh, best way to visit Safe Castle and Bulk Ammo and all of our sponsors, though, would be to go to the survivalpodcast.com. Click on their banners in the right-hand margin, and that way you know you're dealing with an actual sponsor, not somebody with a similar name, because there's a little bit of that going on out there, especially with companies that work hard to build up their brand and reputation. Others seem to think of, well, if I sound like them, maybe I'll get some of their business. I call it brand piracy. Anyway, if you come to my site, thesurvivalpodcast.com, you'll know you're dealing with an actual sponsor. Um, you also can see how to join the Member Support Brigade. If you join the Member Support Brigade, you help support the show. At a whopping 18.3 cents per episode, you get great discounts from people like Bulk Ammo and Safe Castle. Safe Castle, for instance, gives away their lifetime discount membership pro program, which sells for $49 every day on their website for free, effectively making your first year a buck. If you're military, law enforcement, Peace Corps active due to your prior service, or a first responder like an EMT, paramedic, or firefighter, also active duty or prior service, And you email me before, not after you join with the service discount in the subject line. Again, you email me, jack at the survivalpodcast.com, and tell me about your service in one or two sentences, and I will send you a discount code to thank you for your service. It will save you money on the member support brigade. And uh, again, you know, email me though before, not after you join. And the member support brigade does offer a lot of great discounts. Again, bulk ammo does a discount, Safe Castle does a discount for you guys. My Thai Coffee is a company that's not a sponsor. I only have so much room for sponsorships. I really do. Um, I take 12, basically. So I have companies that come to me and want to sponsor the show, and I make them members of the support brigade and say, well, give my people discounts, and, and I'll tell, tell them about you. My Thai Coffee sort of came that way. What actually happened was My Thai Coffee sent me some coffee. And I said, this is the best coffee I've ever drank in my life. And the guy that sent the coffee that works for them is a listener, and he said, would you want to do a discount for the MSB? And I'm like, well, hell yeah. So you can get 10% off all my Thai coffees. I'm sitting here with a mug of it right now. I really do drink it every day. Um, I buy it by five pounds at a time, especially the uh, the rum-flavored coffee and the uh, vanilla, and then the full city roast is just a good, solid, uh, awesome coffee. 10% off all your orders if you're an MSB member. Just one example of the discounts I get for MSB members. On to the year of the episode. The year is 1315. Alex Shrugged puts these together for us at tspwiki.com. Come on over and check out the survival wiki at tspwiki.com. It's like Wikipedia without the nonsense, and it's all about you and survival and self-sufficiency. and It's an encyclopedia of TSP, basically. Anyway, the segment I have today, uh, Alex calls Permaculture and Seven Years of Famine. The earth has bust forth. The sky is filled with darkness. Starvation, disease, and death stalks the land. Mount Tarawasa in present-day New Zealand has erupted, spewing forth enough ash to obscure the sun for at least a year. Maybe two. Germany is already feeling the pinch. The eruption will cause quote, widespread crop failures, end quote, for 1316 and 1317 in a land already strained to the breaking point. The European population has tripled in the last century, and farmers are already having heavy crop yield problems due to heavy rains, cooler weather, and years to come, this disaster will become known as the Great Famine. And like, seven, like the biblical seven-year famine, many people will wonder if God is unhappy about something. 
Uh, my take by Alex Shrugged. Alex says, this is a permaculture connection to this event. It's to the rise of the population in the 13th century. As we found in the story of the Pied Piper of Hamlin, many villages became overpopulated, forcing them to move into uncultivated forest lands. The book, The Great Famine, by William Jordan, suggests these forest plots were super fertile asserts, like bites out of the forest that sustained sudden increase in population. Yet even permaculture-like plots could not survive a growing season without sun, and the farmers did very little fertilizing, so their crop yields were heavily dependent on natural soil conditions and weather more than a modern farmer. The difference between then and now is the modern methods of canning allow us to save enough yields and the seven fat years to sustain us through any lean years if we are prepared. Update, 2014, March 6th, Texas A&M Atmospheric Science Department responded, actually one guy in the department, so don't hold them to it. He says, this sounds very good. It's not unusual for violent eruption to eject aerosols into the stratosphere. There's very little exchange of air between the stratosphere and troposphere. Keep that in mind for Monday, folks. Anyway, very little exchange of air between the stratosphere and troposphere. That's an important little scientific factoid. Anyway, so once an aerosol is injected into the stratosphere, it can remain there for quite a while, circling the globe. Depending on the aerosol, it can have a net cooling effect on the Earth. The aerosols can reflect or absorb solar radiation, which then doesn't make it to the surface. Less solar radiation reaching the surface means cooler global temperatures, and depending on where you are, it could mean a shorter growing period or none at all. We only have direct observation of sulfate aerosols going back to the 70s, so the other way to find these concentrations is using ice cores. I looked and found a paper and saw a small peak in sulfate concentrations in the southern hemisphere in 1316. I'm not sure of the reliability data, however. Your description does sound plausible. So, it sounds plausible that this volcano that we do know blew its top is the cause of this thing that was the two years of, like, horrible conditions for growing. Uh, my take, though, I, I don't know. On, like, is this really what caused it? It sure seems like it, okay? Um, but... Alex calls these permaculture-like plots simply because these were small plots carved out, surrounded by forest. Now, while I'll tell you, that's a better way to do things than conventional agriculture. That would not be permaculture. That would be the annual cultivation of monocrops surrounded by wood-litten strips. And a permaculture system actually would have handled this a lot better. I'm not saying it would have been great. But a permaculture system would be a diverse system, not dependent highly on cereal crops and pea crops. Uh, so the, 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 these folks were growing mostly cereals and legumes at this time. And both of those crops would be hard hit by an event like this. But a system that was derived mostly of diverse perennial production would have done quite well. I would bet you that most oaks still produced mast and dropped mast in this period, for instance, and that if someone had been growing heavily into things like hazels and chestnuts, they might have gotten a reduced yield, but probably a lot better yield and a lot more resiliency and stability than you would have growing barley. Barley and rye were probably the two biggest crops of this time, especially in, in Europe. And both of them, even just with long, cooler days and lots of rain, would be... Even if they grew, they would not yield hardly anything. So there is a bigger part of your problem is the dependence, once again, on grain, which we have not yet learned about, apparently. 
when it comes to the mainstream. That's how we're going to feed ourselves forever is with this type of, uh, well, kind of nonsensical approach, a single-shot approach to the ego-web that is the planet Earth. So I, I, I say this mainly not to pick on Alex, but to kind of point out that a lot of people that look at permaculture with pessimism don't know what permaculture is. And just doing things organically and buffered by uh, something like a forest strip does not make a permaculture. Again, I think it's a big improvement. I think that if we did a lot of our cropping this way, then we would have a little bit more stability in our system, certainly. But there's a lot of problems here. So the fertility that's there in these crops is not lasting fertility if we go in, clear it, basically burn up all the organic matter, which is how they did that, crop it into a monocrop and just keep cropping it. Because there's so much fertility there, you could do that for year after year after year after year after year. But you're dwindling the resource every single year. Where a permaculture system would actually be building the fertility every year and building the resiliency every year. And on the topic of climate change... What nobody's Humvee that caused this climate change now, was it? And this is why we need to get off of the crap about, you know, the air you exhale is a toxin, more on this Monday, and get more on board with the concept of shit happens and climates change often, frequently. And the belief that we have in our society today that the climate is supposed to be stable, that it's supposed to just like kind of be like we always remembered it, shouldn't be really variable at all. And any variation means we did it is, well, it's a religion as far as I'm concerned because it has no true basis in scientific fact as far as I'm concerned because the climate's always changed. Now, can we aggravate it or mitigate it with certain things that we do? I believe so. Specifically at regional levels and dealing with the loss of forest and dealing with, well, if there's a drought and you've clear-cut everything, then that drought is going to cause runoff. And it, it, There's a lot of ways we can do things better or for worse with our human activities. And that is the part we control. How many cars there are on the street, you, you, you're not going to change it, and the plan is not to change it. It's to tax you for it. That's it. How many cows fart? If they weren't cows, they'd be buffaloes. They're going to fart. But when it comes down to do we cut those trees down or if we do cut those trees down, what do we plant in their place? That's something we actually can have a major impact with. And if we're going to build our systems to be resilient, as Ben was talking about with us this week, we should be building our systems so that they are hardy one or two zones up and down from where we're at, if we can. If you're zone two, that could be a challenge if it gets colder, by the way. Uh, let's go ahead and take our first call of the day. Hey, Jack. Do you ever see an end to the war in Iraq or Afghanistan? Thanks. Well, it's a complicated question because it depends on what you mean by over, and I'm taking this caller to not mean over by what the press considers over because the truth is, officially speaking, the war in Iraq has been over since 2011. Um... In 2011, President Obama announced the full withdrawal of troops from Iraq as scheduled on uh, 21st October 2011. U.S. retained an embassy in Baghdad. 
17,000 personnel there. Consulates in uh, Basra, Mosul, and Kirik, which have been allocated more than 1,000 staff each, and between 4,000 and 5,000 defense contractors. But all U.S. combat troops left Iraq on December 18, 2011. That was the last 500 soldiers. At that time, there was only one remaining soldier unaccounted for. It was Staff Sergeant Ahmed Atir, uh, who was missing uh, since 2006. And uh, in February of 2012, his death was confirmed, and he was no longer listing as missing in action. So there's no U.S. combat troops in Iraq. There are to four to 5,000 defense contractors. There's a staff of over 17,000 personnel. And we still have a big say-so on what goes on in Iraq. But right now there's actually calls by some for us to uh, return to Iraq on some level with a greater presence to help bring peace to the two warring factions of, uh, of Islam within Iraq because apparently they need a mediator for this. Uh, it's almost as if the country had problems and uh, a tyrant had risen that kind of kept the balance and we went in and took him out even though he was a bad guy, um, that maybe there was like some, some credibility to the fact that there was some level of balance uh, there that we disrupted. Somebody that may have never been in charge if we didn't interfere in the first place. Um, I don't know, man. <laughs> when we look at Afghanistan, actually... Uh, Karzai has pretty much told Obama to get his crap and get out and uh, has said that they will not sign an agreement that would keep a limited U.S. combat force. And the president has actually yielded and ordered the full withdrawal uh, planning of all U.S. combat troops from Afghanistan, which, of course, they'll leave a, you know, a big force of defense contractors and government employees and things like that as well. So if you mean the end of... Official combat operations in both theaters, one's over and one's on its way to being over very soon. If you mean a lack of fighting and a lack of killing and a lack of warfare in either country, whether we're there or not, the answer is I don't know, but probably not for a long time. If you're asking when we'll get our, our fingers out of their pie and let them sort their own thing out, I have to also say sadly not anytime soon. Right in line with the show I did yesterday about American exceptionalism being part of how we are kept under control and, and, and believe the crap that we're fed, it's also the justification used for going in and committing acts of death and violence in other sovereign nations under the guise of freedom and liberty. I'm not saying that any of the things that have gone on in Iraq and Afghanistan outside of U.S. interference are good, that there's not a lot of death and destruction there. But what I have seen is that when people are fighting a war and an outsider interferes, it tends to actually make the war last longer and worse. And it's a very difficult position to be in when you think you can help. I liken it to this. Imagine you see two children beating each other senseless on a playground and, and, and being big enough to actually really be hurting each other. Now you're an adult and you're twice the size or three times the size of either one of these children. You know full well that you can go in and grab them by the neck, separate them, and force them to shake hands in front of their friends. But have you really prevented violence in the future between those two children? And the answer is you don't know. The answer is you don't know. You may have quelled 
the anger. They may have gotten enough of it out of the system at that point. And when you made them shake hands, they might actually say, hey, it's over, and they might go actually back to being friends. Or one may feel that the other one had the advantage and, you know, the, the mean, evil third party came in and messed it up. And as soon as you turn your back, that stronger person may actually give more violence than ever before to the weaker in the fight. And in the case of something as complex as entire societies and nations, that's almost always going to be the case. The only way that societies ever stop killing each other is when they grow weary of the killing and the death on both sides. And that, I mean, that's the reality. And by interfering with a sovereign nation's evolution in doing that, it usually results in greater death. It is possible that it could result in the saving of lives and the swifter ending of a conflict, but if you go in and occupy that nation, it's probably a lot less likely that that would be the case as well. The truth is that I believe in non-interference. I believe that we should not interfere with another nation. We should not attack another nation. We should not commit violence against another nation unless we are doing clearly in our own interest for self-defense. Not our own interest for global commerce or global control or profits or, or anything else. If we are directly threatened by the actions of another nation, and if we fail to act, we are going to be attacked, um, have our citizens murdered. That and only that is the time that we should be responding with force. Force should only be an answer to force by someone else. That's a basic non-aggression principle. Instead, our nation seeks to control the world through a new imperialism. And we were very good at it for a very long time, and our ability to be good at it is drastically, drastically falling. And when will it all end? I think that we're at a point now it'll end when we realize we can't afford it anymore. And I don't mean morally. I wish I did. I don't mean ethically. I wish I did. I don't mean logistically. I wish... That would even be better. I think what I mean is financially. It will only be at the time that we simply say, we don't have the money to run our own country, let her interfere with others. And, and not the way that some of you are thinking, well, we're past that. No, I mean when we absolutely, literally cannot afford to do it anymore, then and only then will we withdraw. And the problem with that is, As, as much as I wanted us out of these two theaters, if, let's say, while everything was in complete chaos, we had simply packed all our shit and left immediately, it probably would have been worse. And when you create a power vacuum by an immediate withdrawal of force that's been in place for a long time, bad things tend to happen that... It, it, even it, when you're wrong to go in, if you leave, you need to leave with a, a, a phased-out withdrawal and basically try to give stability upon withdrawal and try to mediate between forces on withdrawal and do the best you can. And I don't think that's what's going to happen around the world with our presence in over a 100 nations, many of whom we are a stabilizing force in and that have become dependent upon us uh, either diplomatically or economically. And it spells bad things for, for our planet.
as a whole and our society as a global society. And there's no good answer to it now other than an immediate plan to begin that phased withdrawal from around the world now. And it ain't going to happen. I wish I had better news for you on that. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. My name is Brad. from Arizona. I've got some questions on the Debt Simple fodder system. Um, I tried to start my fodder system two weeks ago. Uh, my fodder has been growing considerably slower. I'm about where you're at between day four and five. And I've also noticed some white powdery, like wet powder-like substance inside the cracked seeds, and I'm wondering if I might have a mold problem. Any guidance you could give would be great. Thanks for all you do, Jack. Bye. Okay, I'm going to answer the question straight, and then I'm going to go back and look at one little word I heard in there that may not really be a big deal. And I, it probably isn't, but I'm going to say it at the end just in case it is. So I've heard from a lot of people that people doing fodder have found that if they grow the fodder at too high a temperature that they end up with mold. And, uh, and this actually sounds more like a powdery mildew uh, problem. Uh, and it may have something to do with whether the seed is, is clean or not to begin with, but I, I really don't know about that. All I can tell you is I never have, and I've grown it from warm temperatures in the summer, just kept in a cool alleyway, um, to very, very cold temperatures in my greenhouse, and I have not had the problem. Uh, I would ask you, and I, I think maybe part of the reason people have problems with their fodder systems is that they're going maybe too deep. I mean, if you're filling up like a quarter of the bucket before it's even soaked, uh, you're going to be at half a bucket, and that's just too much seed crammed in. I use about uh, one big cup, one big scoop, which is probably about two cups to a five-gallon bucket. And I've actually cut down from there because at the time I was doing that, I had more birds. So making sure you're not using too much fodder in the dead simple fodder system, which is just buckets sprouting grain. This is the same way we sprout sprouts on our on our uh, sink top uh, in a jar. That's how I developed it. And there's a full article at Brink of Freedom for those who haven't seen it. Uh, making sure it's pretty well drained. I will say this: the in the article you see tons and tons of holes in the bottom of my bucket. And um, I had a bucket that had some holes in the center like the rest of them did. It was used as a planter in the past. Uh, and when I added a bucket, because actually what happened with me, as, as the cold weather came in, my growth rate did slow down a lot. And I got to by day five, I had no green at all cause, just because it was so cold. So I added a sixth bucket. When I did that, uh, I found this bucket that had just holes in the center. And... I was lazy, and I said, well, I'm just going to use it this way. And then I realized that by having holes just in the center, I have it in my greenhouse now. When I set it up on the, the shelving I have for the plants and dump water through it, if I put a bucket underneath it, since it's a nice small column, all the water goes in the catch bucket, and I don't have it all over the floor of the greenhouse. So I left it that way, and no matter what was going on, when I stacked the buckets, I always put that one on the bottom. That one had a better growth rate a much better growth rate because it drained a little bit slower and it stayed a little bit wetter. So you might have too much drainage could be the problem, uh, but I doubt it. The other thing that could be the problem is maybe you don't have enough. If you drill really tiny holes, then you have a lot wetter of grain. And if it's really, really wet, then you could end up with some mold. And then the germination being slower could just be temperature. So that's, that's another option to look at there. So too much or too little drainage uh, would be, or too much grain to begin with. 
uh, making sure you're soaking that stuff for a full 24 hours before you put it into a drained bucket. So that's that actually is what really hydrates the seed. Then are you you know are you overzealous? Are you dumping water through the system seven or eight times a day and keeping it a lot wetter than it needs to be? I mean, I pretty much dump the water through in the morning and I dump the water through in the evening and that's it. Okay, that said, if you're in a really, really dry climate, do you maybe need to add a third flushing? I, I don't know. Most likely it's the other way around. You're probably too much moisture, but if it's really drying out completely, in between your morning and afternoon soaks, or drains, I should say, or flush-throughs, because you're not soaking it. But if it's really drying out bone dry, then the growth process basically will stall. Some of the seed can actually die. So, you know, you might want to check what is the condition of your seed in the middle of the afternoon. You know, if you have it in a really sunny spot, like in a sunny spot in a greenhouse, it could dry out too much. So maybe add another a soak. Okay, then... Those are the things I would check. Now, the one thing you said, powdery stuff in the cracked grain. If you're using cracked grain, which you're probably not, then there's your problem. You should be using whole barley, not flaked barley, not rolled barley, whole barley. The same barley you would buy if you were a barley farmer and buying seed. That's probably the case, but since you said it that way, I'm just going to say it at the end. Most likely what you mean is when you look at a kernel of barley, it's got a crack in it, and you're seeing the buildup there. If I had you on the line live, I would say, well, is it growing at all? If it's not growing at all, then you've got an issue. right? If it's growing slowly, then you just have to tweak. right? But if you're not getting any growth, you got an issue. Another option, though, for people feeding grain to especially chickens you don't necessarily have to make fodder out of it. It's a lot healthier for them, even if you just soak it. If I didn't feel like making fodder for a while, I'd throw a cup or two of grain in the bucket, I'd fill it up with water, and I'd let it soak overnight. In the morning, I would dump the water off and feed them the wet grain. And I would do that before I would feed whole grain. And you're still going to get an increase in a lot of high-quality nutrition that way. Um, I would say that it probably even makes sense then to at least run it through a strain bucket system like my system for a couple days. Um, even if you just start to get a little tiny roots out of it and feed it at that point, you've drastically improved not only the bulk, but the nutritional quality. You don't necessarily have to get it to a grass state. So another thing might be reducing just the overall time of the system down to maybe three buckets. If you can pull the grain out and see any sprouts coming out of it, it's it, especially with your poultry, it's really good to go at that point. Uh, let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Tom from New England. Uh, I'm glad you have a, uh expert council member related to bees. And uh, somewhat of a personal question, but probably related for some of the listeners, is the fact that I am looking into having a beehive on my property, actually a couple of them. And I have an allergy to bees. Uh, more specifically, uh, a number of years ago, I was stung by about half a dozen yellow jackets. And uh, since then, I don't have a severe allergic reaction. I just have a, so far, when it, where I've been stung, it, it swells up and um, it, it, in an area, probably you know, depending on where, a few inches wide. 
And uh, I'd really like to have the bees, but I'm really concerned that that's a major risk. And I, I don't know with respect to bees relative to yellow jackets, their aggressiveness, and the likelihood of being stung and the allergies, more specific to yellow jackets relative to um, you know, regular bees. So if, uh, you know, if we have the expert council member who can give some feedback on that, that, that would be helpful for me because that's really been my uh, hesitation on getting any on my property. And I do have gardens, and I'm actually setting up some more beneficial flowers around my garden, and I'd love the pollination. Uh, that's just been my delay. Of course, I'd love the honey, too. So any opinion on it w would be helpful. Thank you. All right, so I kick that over to Michael Jordan. This is a long answer, but uh, really in-depth and covers a lot of angles here. Jack, brother, <clears throat> Bee Whisperer here. The question that, uh, you, that you sent me from the gentleman, he wants to keep bees but has allergic re reactions to bee stings, wants to pollinate some of his garden and wants to be lucky and maybe get some honey. What do I do? This is my guy, Jack. I did not get his name in the message, but uh, if he hits me up on Facebook, uh, I will help you out as much as I can. Okay, the first things first is if you keep anything that you're going to do, you're, you're going to get stung. <laughs> okay, so if you keep honeybees, you're going to get stung. If you keep leaf cutter bee bees or squash bees, you're going to get stung. If you put anything in a box and you have to feed it, it may lash out at you. So as a beekeeper, you're going to have to plan that you're going to get stung. Okay, if you have a large problem with keeping bees, you're, you're going to die. Um, don't keep them. There's no sense of jeopardizing yourself for for something else. I just wouldn't recommend it. Uh, there's other things you can do. But, you know, you can also put out things like mason bees and mason beehives in your garden. And you just put those all over and you just clean them out yearly. And they're a local pollinator. Um, they're local here in the U.S. They weren't, like, imported in. They will love you if you give them a home and they will do lots of pollination for you. And mass pollination scale in a local garden. They're really much better for like a home gardener than just keeping like a beehive to grow your own food. One, the one problem with the mason bees is that they are a unibee. They, they do not grow or populate unless you have more tubes for them to grow in. So you'll need to put more tubes for more population. Some years, you know, it depends on the season. They, They might move on a little bit, or you might have a quick freeze and kill some of the hatching brood. You know, they're different than keeping honeybees, but they're a local pollinator that you can that you can use. You can move them in and out of homes. If you keep uh, and manage mason bees, I, I'm going to send Jack like a a little flyer that I have on mason bees that was given out to me by a a group. Um, Also, I'm going to send also a uh, link where you can probably purchase mason bees that I, I know some people that, uh, that sell them and then you can purchase them. You know, you, if you're going to keep them, you know, and they're out there and you're working with them, you're going to get stung with these type of bees or any, any kind of bees. So if you have a big problem with them, you know, don't keep them. But that's another way is just to maybe go with another pollinator or a different type of bee. If there's no stinging, there's no seed. So that's, that's basically what I'm going to tell you on that. Next, you're going to get the wild girls right. You're going to get some of these honeybees and not go mason bees or 
squash or leaf cutter, right? Something else. You're going to go straight honey. And let's uh, go over how to get the stinger out because you're going to get stung. And you're going to get stung at one time or a lot at that one time. Let's do the smartest thing and let's put the bee into perspective and let's, let's, let's gear up. I mean, I've done photos for magazines and for shows doing nude beekeeping. I've done it in kilts. I don't recommend it. Beekeeping is, if you have a problem with getting stung, you know, really look at getting a heavy bee outfit. Uh, it will, it will help out a lot. A heavy bee suit, they won't sting through it. It's going to be heavy, bulky, and hot because you work the bees during the hottest part of the day. But really invest in something that you're, you're not going to get stung in. And invest in like duct tape. A lot of duct tape. Work with a buddy. Stay calm. That's the number one thing with working with bees. Stay calm. Aggressive nature. Pheromone. Bees, queens, put out the pheromones. So stay calm. Bees smell better than dogs. Better than sharks. So they smell fear. That's an, that's, you know, that's another thing. So if you're geared up and you're going, you stay calm, working with some non-aggressive measures, you're more than likely not to get stung as much. So now you're stung. I don't want you to slap it. I don't want you to pinch it. If you do any of that stuff, it'll squeeze the venom into you. If you're stung, stay calm. If you have to get to an EpiPen to stop anaphylactic shock or spontaneous pneumonia thorax from the BTOC, which is where your lungs will start collapsing, move back. Move slow. You know, step uh, into a shed or garage. Don't just go in the house with those bees on you and, and freak out. Get into an area where you can get down and you should have your stuff prepped out if you need that stuff that you can get in there, shoot yourself up, derobe, and immediately call first, 911 for assistance. But like I said, if you have that kind of problem, you shouldn't be keeping bees. But you're stung now. And if you do not need, you know, that type of immediate reaction or something. Just stay calm, move away, do not slap or pinch. Pull out your driver's license or the back of your pocket knife and just kind of scrape it off. Do not pull it out with tweezers or anything, but lay something on the edge and just scrape across it. And this pinches the venom sac from the tubing. right? The double-edged tubing with the prongs that go in and out, squeezing the venom sac to inject it in the tube. Well, if you can cut that off, you reduce. So then you can go back into the house later on, use tweezers or... Sometimes I just put ice on it and uh, cover it with a band-aid, maybe two days check it to see if there's anything left in it that maybe I got to pinch out or something. Now, this is the truth. No one in the world is not allergic to a bee sting. Some have violent reactions uh, to itching and to some swelling or bumps. It all depends on how much you get pumped into you, where it is pumped into you, how much is in you right now, and how badly your body reacts to that venom toxin. The toxins all have the same neurotoxins like a rattlesnake. So if you're stung, then you can remove the venom bag before it pumps into you. You're golden, right? You're just going to have a little bump and a little irritation and itch. But if you get stung like 500 plus times to, you know, a thousand, like Africanized bee attack, <laughs> you're going to die. So... If you get stung over and over, you're, you're, the, you know, you're gonna get all that venom in you, that toxin. And if you get stung a couple times over a couple days, over a series of months, you're gonna have higher levels of toxins. And it can hurt you more, or it can make you Im immune. And 
that's like the luck of the draw, right, of being a beekeeper. You know, I have a really good friend that's going to come and do some queening teachings at one of my classes, and he can't really work with bees because he's been stung so many times. His family were beekeepers, and he would really like to really work with them again, but he's been stung so many times he just cannot take anymore. He gets the lung collapse. So, you know, the the bee venom thing is just a crazy, crazy sick stiffness, man, that uh, we're learning more and more about every day. BVT, which is bee venom therapy, has been done for hundreds of years. It's estimated that about 50 U.S. physicians use it for more like major advanced life-threatening illnesses. But more and more patients are coming by the numbers to acupuncture clinics to get bee sting treatment. Uh, it is like the number one thing for multiple sclerosis right now. And AP therapy researches, APIS meaning B in Latin, feel that the B may be the cure to all cancer. Bees may be the foundation for that cure. And they're really developing a lot of things with a lot of things that bees do from propolis to the venom to all kinds of stuff for testicular cancer and breast cancer right now. That's phenomenal. So these people in bee venom therapy think with the stuff that bees do that it's, uh, it, it can be extremely great for, uh, bees and bees. My dad, you know, if he gets stung, he swells up like a hulk in a six to six to nine inch radius of that sting, you know. So he can't get stung more than like 40 times at one time, or he can only get stung a few times over a few days, you know. You know, last year he only got stung twice. So that just shows you, you suit up, you move slow, right? You get less stings, you know. You want to work bees, you want to work bees like a beekeeper, you know. You want to be a good beekeeper. He takes a little bit of Benadryl as preventative stuff. Uh, and it keeps the reaction time lower to two or three days if he gets stung. So he's using an anti-inflammatory and maybe some, you can use some her herbal medicines for allergies to kind of reduce that. Uh, so remember if you're doing honeybees, take, you know, an allergy medicine to kind of prevent it. Suit up tight. Uh, have your sugar water and spray bottle ready to keep the bees from flying, you know, up out of the top of the hives if you're working them that style. Yeah, maybe if you're going to use a uh, liquid smoke, you know, because in some areas, you know, you don't want to break out a smoker, man. You know, no one likes smoke blown in their face from cigars or anything. So it's not like you want to do that with the bees. And in the prairie out here, you start a fire, you might burn everything to the ground out here in the middle of nowhere. You know, maybe use some liquid smoke. Be calm. And you may never get stung, you know. I got probably 20 bucks to see you be the first beekeeper that never got stung, but good luck on all your beekeeping. I love it. And thanks for asking me. If you want more information, message me on Facebook or hit me at AB Friendly Company Gmail. Ask my brother Jack. He will get it to me. Uh, after March 15th, I'm hoping my website's back up and we'll be selling you powdered sugar honey, right? So we'll get that dehydrated out into the market for you so you can start picking that up. Jack, thanks for letting me yapping about the bees, brother. And I'd like to thank the TSP community that I've been talking to. you got some great people out there sharing some great stuff, man. Uh, I know this sounds like both sides of the fence on this, that, you know, don't keep the bees because you get stung. And the other side, you know, if you, you keep them, you know, do... Do some other tactics. So just remember, you're going to get stung if you're going to keep bees. But this is the Bee Whisper with the Bee Friendly Company, man. And uh, 
I'm out. Hi, Jack. This is Mark from California, and I have a question for Stephen Harris of the Expert Panel. Um, I was given some free uh, UPS batteries about three to four years ago. I never got around to setting up the backup system with them, and they've been sitting in my garage on a rack. I'm sure they're all dead now and unsharry. My question is, are they still usable? Are they still good? Can I still use them? Um, I'm getting ready to move, and I want to take them with me if I can. They are DECA Unigy. 31HR 5000s. Uh, appreciate the help. Thank you. Oh, another one for the council. So let's hear from uh, Stephen Harris. Hi, Mark. This is Steve Harris with the expert panel calling in to answer your questions. Pray for the dead, and the dead will pray for you. I couldn't find the MP3 online, so unfortunately, I had to sing sing it for you. Now, I would really never use used batteries for a battery bank, but I'll look these things up. DECA, D-E-K-A, Unigy 31HR 5000s are big batteries. They are 135 ampere hours each, and they cost over $350 a piece. Now, some places rotate out their batteries after three or four years as a standard policy. So getting a big set of these might be useful for you because they were maintained in a UPS and they are just so incredibly made in the first place. They're the highest quality battery. Plus, these are sealed batteries, no water to add to them ever. So if someone wanted to give me some used golf cart batteries, I'd say no thank you. If someone wanted to give me a four-year-old used marine battery, I'd say no thank you. If someone wanted to give me some DECA Unigy batteries that were three or four years old that cost $350 a piece and were maintained for their life, probably never even discharged, I'd say, oh, yeah, thanks so much. Let's load them up in my pickup truck. This is a very rare situation where I'd take a used battery to trust my health, life, and safety to it, okay? Uh, note, you cannot... This battery cannot be added to my current system. They'd have to be a system on their own. You can't mix and match batteries in a battery bank. they got to be the same type, the same everything, and pretty much the same age within three, four, to six months of age of each other. You just can't get two and then add two more later and add some more later on. It won't work very well. It gets messy. And the whole battery bank will come down to the performance of the lowest performing battery. So as I've said, get all the batteries at the same time. Now, in your case, having them sit on a shelf dead, dead for three to four years means they are 100% dead, gone, zip, zilch, given up the ghost, It ain't going to happen no matter what you do or how big they were or how well they were made in the first place. They are gone. You could use them as a boat anchor. You could use them in a trebuchet for either the ballast for the trebuchet or for the projectile. Use them as giant Legos to make your own castle wall that would be pretty bulletproof uh, wherever you wanted that in your house. And what you can really, honestly, use them for is you can use them for the core charge that you'll be charged when you go to get new batteries. 
I'd suggest you go get some GC2, that stands for a golf cart, G, as in GC2, batteries from Sam's Club, and I know their core charge is at least $15 per battery. So it's like $92 for the battery and $15 for the core charge. That can add up, especially if you're getting like eight batteries. And so you can turn in any battery as a core charge. So they'll work good for that. Yes, even if you got a little battery from your little itty-bitty, you know, Toyota, and you want to go buy some golf cart batteries, you can turn in that little itty-bitty Toyota or even a uh, lawn and tractor battery, you can turn that in for a core charge for a new battery you are buying. It does not have to be the same battery that you're buying that you're going to be turning in for a core charge. This is a little money-saving note for you. Again, this is Steve Harris for the Expert Panel. I really need some really good questions called in, so I know you've been thinking about it. So, Jack gave you the phone number for the Think Line. Call into the Think Line and say, I got a question for Steve Harris, and I will be on the air answering it for you. Again, this is Steve Harris with the Expert Panel saying thank you very much. If you want to see all the stuff I've done and stud on the stuff I've done with Jack, it's at Steven, S-T-E-V-E-N, 1234.com. Thanks, guys. See you later. Uh, good stuff from Stephen Harris, as always, and uh, let's take another call. Hey, Jack, this is Richard from the Houston area. I'm uh, calling in as a, as a kind of follow-up to a question that was submitted for Keith Snow on cooking okra. I was kind of surprised. Uh, one thing that we like to do with okra, I tend to, if I grow any okra, I tend to have way too much 10-foot-tall plants with tons of it on there. First of all, they said cook it to make it more palatable. I think if you if you snap off a piece of okra, an okra that's about one and a half to two inches long max, you can, you can eat them fresh and delicious. But anyways, that aside, um, one of the things that we like to do is, is it's a little bit tedious, but it, it's kind of nice to do if you've got a bunch of it and you've got some time. But you, you collect your okra, uh, again, uh, like Keith said, it shouldn't be too big, maybe just a couple inches at the most. Cut off the ends and you split them down the middle. Cut them right in half so you've got every little piece of okra is in a half piece. And you actually lay them out on a cookie sheet and roast them. Uh, when you, when you do that, it, it basically dries up the inside, as some people call the sliminess, and it makes them it makes them uh, like a finger food. You can just, you can brush them with a little olive oil and season them however you want. Some people will put uh, brush them with olive oil and then put them in like a like a bowl that with a lid on it and uh, throw uh, different seasonings in there, maybe a squirt of uh, lemon juice. I'm not a big fan of that, but some people do that. And then shake them up so it incorporates the seasonings all over it. And it, it makes it like a finger food. It's, it dries it out a little bit. It's kind of crunchy sometimes. Uh, they're not slimy. They're not all limp and stuff like that. And so it makes a really good finger food. You can actually do the same thing with Brussels sprouts. You cut a Brussels sprout in half and then brush it with olive oil and salt and pepper, and it's, it's really good. Roasted about 350 uh, for either one for the okra. Uh, and uh, just kind of cook it so you so you feel like it's just right. You got to think with it sometimes, depending on the oven. And uh, again, you can play with the seasonings. Just salt and pepper is really good. Uh, the light, just a light brush of olive oil. So they're really good around our house. I was surprised I didn't hear that. I thought I thought a lot of people did that. And I guess I guess it's just us. <laughs> but again, uh, just follow up to Keith Snow's question given to him about cooking okra. It's another thing to do with your okra to kind of extend. Extend it out so you don't you don't feel like you're wasting any or, or storing so much and not eating so much. Anyway, 
Have a good one. Bye-bye. Yeah, I'll definitely agree. If you pick baby okra and, and like throw little pieces of baby okra into like a salad or something, it's actually pretty good that way. I'll tell you another way to do that. You get your baby okras, you put them in a jar, and you soak them in a solution of half water and half rice wine vinegar, a light pickling basically, and some salt. Uh, I don't know as much as you want. I don't measure stuff. I kind of look at it probably uh, two teaspoons worth, depending on how big the jar is, or one teaspoon if it's small, whatever, some salt, and a handful of black peppercorns, and then use those on a salad. That's another thing I thought of after last uh, Monday's show. And then another thing, just on what the caller was said, I've seen in the stores basically like okra chips, like kind of done the way he's saying, but like, to the point where they're like crunchy. And those were okay. I, I was kind of excited when I saw them. Something crunchy and paleo. Yeah. I, I will say this though, even, and I don't know how they would be done in the oven this way. They might be really good with other food. I've always found okra to be something to eat with other food, not as a standalone. These okra chips were dry, but it, it was like dehydrated mucus is how I kind of thought about them, right? So that if you, and they weren't that bad. They really weren't. And if they had, the ones I had were kind of bland. Uh, as far as the flavorings went in, in the grocery store, they had them out and they weren't that good. So they didn't buy any, but if somebody like kicked up the seasoning a little bit, they might have been better. But if you don't like, and it didn't bother me, but if you don't like any of that texture that okra has, as soon as you started eating this, like you, you rehydrated the slime and it was still, it wasn't anywhere near as pronounced, but it was still there. Uh, but I'll have to give this, uh, this method a try. If you have any ideas for okra, let us know in today's, uh, show notes. In the comments on the blog at thesurvivalpodcast.com for episode 1315, let's take another call. Hi, Jack. It's Mike from New Hampshire, formerly Mike from Connecticut. I've called in before. The question here is a little bit for you and a little bit for Steve and maybe even a little bit for Ben. I just finished listening to Ben's talking uh, in this week's podcast about tapping uh, maple syrup from the trees and talking about all of the energy it takes to actually turn it into syrup. What about converting that into ethanol fuel instead of having to get all the way to high 90s or 85% you know, sugar content for maple syrup, you'd only have to get to what, 10, 15, 20% depending on the way you were doing it? So does that make it a more or less useful feedstock for ethanol production for fuels? Uh, with that said, have you ever considered using saps or different tree varieties for brewing alcoholic beverages? I would think that you know, that's probably a really good idea too. Anyway, thanks for the call and continue to do what you do. Really appreciate it. Okay, so uh, the question basically being, would it make sense to use maple syrup or maple sap to create an ethanol fuel? Because obviously we could ferment it and distill it. And that it might take us less money to distill um, the fermented result of maple sap than it would take for us to boil down the sap to make maple syrup. Well... For that to work out, it would actually have to take less energy, and it really won't. And even all things being equal, to move that much water over that long a period of time uh, after going through fermentation process uh, and needing uh, a significant amount of yeast nutrient, uh, because there's not much nutrient in maple sap for the yeast to work on, you'd end up somewhere in the neighborhood of the same to produce uh, the result you're thinking of. But that won't even be enough. Here's what I mean. Um, maple syrup 
as it sits, you know, kind of on the shelf, uh, after all that energy has been ex exhorted on it, is nowhere near equivalent pound for pound to what sugar from, let's say, cane sugar can do um, for the production of alcohol. It, it doesn't even get up to honey. And I know this is running calculations in my program I make beer with. I just ran a couple calculations real quick to see some stuff here. So if I dump one pound of table sugar into a, a gallon of water and ferment it out, I end up with about 7.5% alcohol. That's one pound of sugar into a one-gallon batch of water. If I put one pound of honey into a gallon of water and ferment that out, uh, I end up at about 5.5% alcohol, so uh, significantly less. If I turn around, instead of using honey, and I use maple syrup, so fully refined maple syrup, just like you would pour on your waffles, I get 4.8% for a pound of syrup to a gallon of water. Now, with weights and liquids and all, it's not quite directly exchangeable, but you get the point, that it, it's it's not efficient in many ways, to convert maple syrup into ethanol. You can do it. It's really good in a stout beer, by the way. And when I say stout, I don't mean a heavy. I mean an actual the stout, like a maple stout. I've had maple stouts and maple porters that are awesome. The reality is that maple sap um, has a lot of uses in fermentation, uh, even without making syrup. So if you were to do something like, you know, add... You use five gallons of maple sap to brew beer. You could make a pretty awesome, faintly mapley beer. You could use a couple gallons of not syrup, but sap in a beer. It could be used in a mead. It could be used in a wine. Almost everything that you would ever do with maple to produce an alcohol product, the, the for human consumption version is more valuable than the energy output. It's just not really an efficient use or an effective use of a resource. Um, one way or another, you're going to apply an awful lot of heat to get here from there. There's just not that much sugar in a gallon of sap to put to really put this in perspective. Okay, to get the gallon of maple syrup, I need 10 gallons of sap. That means to get one gallon of 4.5% alcohol. I need 10 gallons of maple sap to get that. And, and that, again, that's just not an efficient biofuel product. It's really not, especially when we factor in, well, what is its, what is its commodity value uh, as a product that one would consume or use for other functions like baking and things in some way or another end up as a food or beverage product? It's worth too much money to waste it in the production of something you're going to dump in your car and burn. There's there's better ways to do that. So to your question, make fuel from maple syrup or maple sap. No. Make delicious, tasty adult beverages from it. Yes. But I would say do so in moderation because it's a very upfront flavor and it's easy to overdo. That said, I cannot help but wonder... What one would get if one were to take and ferment out um, maple sap and then run it through something like a moonshine still? I don't know. I wonder how much of the essence of what you started with would be in the final product. And it would be, would it be something that would, you know, 
really be interesting if it were then aged on charred oak. And it would just seem like if it would be, then somebody would be doing it already in the commercial world. But who knows? It might be worth an experiment. Anyway, remember, you can make your own gas with a still from uh, Stephen Harris that you can find at imakemygas.com. And it is only for the production of ethanol to be used as a fuel because, of course, the production of ethanol through distillation for human consumption in the United States by an unlicensed individual is illegal. But it's called a moonshine still, and I leave it to you to figure out what you might do with it in a grid-down situation or just because you don't care from there on your own. Anyway, um, let's go ahead and take another call. Hello, my name is Josh Henderson. My dad likes to listen to your podcast a lot. And I was wondering, because as a skateboarder, when I grow up and have like a whole bunch of money, which, I don't know, might happen. I'm trying to be a woman. Anyway, um, I was wondering if you could build a concrete house. My dad said it would be probably very cold, damp, and kind of humid. And he said that it would be like a fortune to heat it. I was just wondering if it was feasible, seeing as you could skate the entire house and build ramps and stuff. Anyway, thank you. Bye. Hey, don't lose that attitude, man. As long as you work hard and uh, learn a lot of things between now and whenever you grow up, don't lose the attitude of, I want to be a skateboarder and make a lot of money. Uh, people will say it can't be done, but uh, there's some people that are doing it. So you may change what you're looking for. But this is, I played this call for two reasons. One, it's actually a great question with some, some great stuff I can talk about. But two, because this is the kind of crap that adults uh, crap on with kids all the time, and we shouldn't be doing it because um, kids that keep this attitude turn into adults that do amazing things, young man. So you you stick with it. Just make sure you put a hard work ethic and a desire to learn alongside of it. Anyway, um, so concrete houses actually can be one of the most energy-efficient things known to man if they're, if they're built properly. Um, the biggest reason we don't do it today is not cost. We can actually build concrete housing uh, for about the same price as we can build houses out of materials that are far less durable. A well-built concrete home would stand up very well to things like tornadoes, which have the potential to kill us. And they have the use and ability to be used for both passive heating and cooling, especially when we start combining them with earth contact and things like that. Uh, I looked at a house, for instance, it wasn't a concrete house, it was a timber frame home that I thought about buying, and while we didn't buy it, it was a beautiful house, and we thought about it very, very hard. It was a little bit too far out for, uh, for, for, our, for our needs, but the hole downstairs was built with concrete flooring, and when you were in the house in the summer, that concrete flooring being in contact with the earth, you know, brought in about, you know, since it's built into the foundation, uh, allowed a temperature of the floor to be about like, you know, 65 degrees in the summer. That's a good thing in the summer. Now you'd say, well, what about the winter? Well, in the winter, you, it's still about 65 degrees. That's a good thing in the winter. Uh, maybe you'd like it a little warmer. Well, this floor actually had um, a heat exchanger built into the floor, uh, a, a thermal heating uh, element throughout the entire floor. 
so that instead of trying to heat the air, you actually heated the concrete under your feet, and then that radiated out and actually kept the house warm. Not to mention, it felt really good walking around, and you know, basically we were there and looking at it when it was cold out. So we turned it on, and we took our shoes off, and you walk around in your socks on that, and it feels really good. He could have skateboarded in it, but again, I don't want to quash what you're thinking of, but you probably won't be skating in your house when it's a house you paid for. But you know, you might have a, a part of the house that's kind of Made for doing that. Who the hell knows? I bet Tony Hawk does. Anyway, um, you also have to understand, though, that concrete can be good or bad. And the saying it's going to be cold is really depending on where it is and how it's built. It could be too hot. So in some places in Central America, for instance, a lot of people move there or, or their, their origins, I shouldn't say move there, their, their ancestors moved there from you know Spain. And they, their ancestors are from northern Spain, where everybody has these big concrete manor houses. And the people down there that actually have money, you know, they kind of they hold on to that tradition, and they build these big houses out of, of stone and concrete. And it sits there and bakes in the sun all day long, and at night it radiates out. And since you're in the tropics, and it's still like, you know, at night, 80 degrees out, it, the heat just kills you, and it's very hard to keep cool. Where in the in northern Spain, at night it's cool, so that radiating out actually helps keep you warm. So passive solar is a good thing if we understand how to harness it. So it really comes down to not does concrete make sense as a building material for homes, but how do we build a home with concrete to take advantage of concrete's intrinsic characteristics, being that it will equalize temperature with what it's in contact with, being the earth, And that when it is, is hit with high temperatures, like solar radiation, it will absorb that heat. And when you cease to provide the warmth, it will radiate that heat. So that's actually how a concrete home stays very cool in the daytime. Is it's, if it, as it's receiving heat, it just keeps absorbing it, absorbing it, absorbing it. It doesn't radiate much heat as long as it's continuously being heated. But as soon as you cut off the input, it seeks to, to basically equalize with the air temperature around it. And the only way it can do that is the release of that, that stored thermal energy. And that's, again, why it works really good for passive solar in a place where the days are sunny and the nights are cool. And, and really... This is something I think I should point out, like because we had people talking about this on the blog yesterday. Whenever we look at anything in permaculture or architecture, green building, there is no one thing that's just, that's the way it is. It always depends. And that's why I answer so many questions with it depends. So when we look at that intrinsic characteristics of concrete, and you say, well, will concrete work for me? It's not just, well, where do you live? It's where do you live? What's your budget for construction? How big of a house do you want? What side of a slope are you on? What other technologies will be used in the building of your home? How do you plan to heat, cool, and power it? And these are questions that you really want to talk to multiple designers of homes, if you're purpose building your own home, that use the different technologies and fully understand the advantages and disadvantages of each. And the person you can usually trust is the one that can say, well, let me not just crap all over insulated foam panels, right? 
and just say that my solution of, of the concrete system is better. Let me tell you how good that is and why it's good and why you might want it. Let me tell you why what I do is good and why you might want that. And the person that can actually explain to you all the options and then say, this is what I would do, but if you're more concerned about these areas, then maybe you should consider these other things, you can usually trust that person. And, and you might not even decide to use their solution But at least you can trust their information. That's why I believe paying for consultations like that make a lot of sense. If you're going to build a house, spend two, three hundred thousand or more dollars on building a house, and you're not willing to pay somebody a couple thousand dollars to make sure you make the right decisions, that's kind of a poor allocation of your of your of your money. Like it really makes sense when you have the opportunity to build a house from the ground up to look at all the technologies that is that are available today. You know, steel insulated panels with a concrete style uh, coating are amazing with what they can do. This light concrete, so it's not the concrete like you're thinking of that you would make all smooth and slick and used to skateboard on. It, it, it looks like concrete, but it weighs, you know, 10% of the weight, but it has all the strength. And if that's a round steel fabricated foam, that's an incredibly efficient structure if used properly. So, it, it, again, it's about, it depends. Now, from a practical perspective, let's say you make it as a big-time skateboarder and you have the money to build any kind of house you want, you'd probably have also the money to have a little bit of land and put in, like, a purpose-built skate area and actually design it for that intent. I don't really see the place of a house existing as a house and a skateboard facility But who knows? If you pull it off, you pull it off. But don't be turned off on concrete construction either for the prospect of energy efficiency or cost because it's one of the best and most underutilized building materials that we have for those purposes. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. I have a question for expert council member Ben Falk. All right. Ben, I've heard you, Eric Tonesmeyer, Jeff Lawton, and others talk about capacity building for nursery stock of permaculture plants and the fact that a lot of permaculture plants aren't as available um, as the demand you know, uh, necessitates. Uh, where would a person start in learning the ways of building a small-scale, on-the-homestead permaculture nursery similar to what you're doing, similar to what other permaculture people are doing? Um, what are some books and other resources that would get a person started down that path, whether that's info on how to run a nursery, understanding plant genetics, or something else? Um, what it, what's been the most beneficial to you? It seems out there, it seems like there are so many types of beneficial and underutilized plants out there that there are huge opportunities for hundreds of people to start regional nurseries of permaculture seed stock and perennial plants. Yet when I hear the experts like you and Lawton and others talk about this, you always mention it. You mention that you have nursery stock of sea berries, that you're breeding them for purposes, and then you move on to something else. Um, I'd like to actually learn the nitty-gritty details of that process, of how you select, um, of how you raise, of how you sell, and how, and how you determine what, um, what is going to be the most cost-effective and beneficial thing to do. All right, as an aside, and perhaps something Jack would be willing to chime in on too, what are your thoughts on the role of hops on the permaculture homestead and permaculture nursery, and perhaps, dare I say, the permaculture brewery? Thank you very much. Bye-bye. 
I have some thoughts on this too, but as this was for Ben, I'm going to let him take the uh, first swing at it, so to speak. Hi there, Jack and all. Ben Falk um, with an attempt to answer the um, multiple-pronged question there from um, the caller about uh, permaculture nurseries, um, plant stock development, new species and varieties, underutilized species, and also about hops. I'll stop. start with the hops question because that's a lot more straightforward. Um, hops are definitely a great plant, and they used to be really popular where I live in Vermont uh, around the turn of the century before last. Um, then they fell out of favor along with wheat and a lot of other plants we used to grow. And now they're experiencing a major resurgence um, with, you know, people planting acres upon acres pretty rapidly here, although it's still tiny scale compared to out west. Um, and they, they're great. They're, they're cold hardy. Um, I don't know if they go much colder than zone four, but we've actually designed and built and planted uh, a hops trellis system for a client in zone four, and they're doing great, the plants are. Um, they started to produce well in the second year. I think by year three, they were loaded with hops, the, the vines. Um, and there's at least, you know, I think five to ten varieties that people are growing in Vermont, um, which is mostly zone four or five. Um, my experience is they start off pretty slowly, and then they start raging on the second year. And they're definitely um, pretty heavy feeders. So we actually cited our, our hops for this client downhill of the um, of his leach field, and they're doing great there. Mine here are doing are going more slowly. I think I need to get him some more manure tea or um, some better mulch. They need to. They seem to need some care, especially in the first year to get going. Um, but they're great. They can they can grow 20, 30 feet a year. Be a great summer shade once you get them up um, after the second, first and second year. Grow them up buildings. Uh, and then your other question, well, multiple questions really about where to learn how to run a nursery and, and how to how to actually um, develop uh, plant species and varieties, uh, breed breed new varieties or, or select for the best genetics on your own site. I mean, there's uh, we could talk for, for hours about that, and we do in our permaculture courses, actually, and you could have a whole, you know, week-long course just dedicated to that, and, and there are, actually. Um, Seed School is a great resource for learning about the basics of genetics when it comes to plants and, and breeding. That's mostly focused on annuals, but they teach all over the country. Um, working at a nursery is probably one of the best things you could do if you want to learn about that. And when I say nursery, I don't mean just any nursery. A lot of nurseries just pot up stock that they buy and then sell it. Um, but a nursery that actually does a lot of plant propagation, um, as many types of plant propagation as possible would be a great place to work. Um, you want to learn about budding and, and grafting and starting plants from layering and cuttings and from seed as well. As many different types of propagation that you can learn about is important. And then of course, um, you know, there's, there's, well, there's dozens of books about plant propagation and nursery management out there. I won't get, won't get into them all. I've used the grafter's handbook quite heavily for, for grafting, but that's only one, one of many tools as far as plant propagation goes. And, um, you know, as far as getting a sense of what plants are going to be useful on your site, 
that's where we all need to, right off the bat, as soon as we can, on our own sites, uh, plant as much diversity, put as much diversity in the ground as possible. And you'll start to see um, within the first few years what does well on your site, and then you'll hopefully start to be able to propagate the best species and varieties within the first you know, two, five, ten years. Obviously, it'll take longer for, for a lot of nut trees um, to know, you know what's precocious and what wants to bear. Um, and so if you hit the ground running on a site, getting stuff in the ground and then with propagation, you know, inside of potentially 7, 10, 15 years, you could have some real established um, new genetics that, that you can be distributing. Um, obviously, shorter than that for annuals and longer than that for things like, um, you know, Siberian stone pine or, you know, a lot of acorns. Um, but, you know, getting started on that is key. Um, you'll narrow it down within the first 10 years pretty quickly, what does really well on your own site. Um, of course, you can speed this up by using the world around you as a nursery, because it is. I mean, the landscape around all of us is one big mass selection happening, um, one big nursery at work if we choose to use it that way. So we go around, for instance, and on bikes and on foot, find all the apples within our immediate area and actually some pears too and taste them and whichever ones we like the most or seem disease resistant or keep a while. Um, we go back and get cyan wood from those trees and we graft that cyan wood onto our own trees on site and we just give them a name, you know, whatever we want to call it because it's not, it's an unknown, you know, unknown variety. Most of these are wild trees anyways. They probably weren't grafted and planted. Um, and then we have, you know, those genetics um, on our own site as well, and, and we have more options to choose from there. Um, and the whole planet is, is one big nursery if we choose to use it that way for um, promoting as much diversity as possible. So uh, wish you the best of luck. It's certainly a long journey. It's not something you're going to learn overnight, um, but it's crucial that we have more people um, getting a, a serious literacy and um, and actually fluency with these systems. So I, I hope you go headlong into it, and I uh, hope to hear about your your nursery that comes out of it. We need more more great plant material constantly. That's for sure. Thanks. You know we have such great expert panel members that you know sometimes you don't have a lot to add, and I I, I wouldn't have actually anything to add if this wasn't something that I was so passionate about, and just have more. Uh, desire to say something than the need to say something right now, maybe. Um, I, I personally believe uh, when it comes to nursery that there is a massive amount of opportunity for backyard nurseries everywhere that many would only even sell within a few neighborhoods around them and probably have enough business from that alone ongoing year after year to make the person, a, you know, some if nothing else, a significant amount of pocket money. As you start to learn how to do things uh, with with grafting and with rooting and cuttings, it's it's really easy to do, and you can take that to a big business, a mid sized business, or keep it very very small. So I, I I think it's something that you know kind of Ben was talking toward the end about turning the whole planet into a nursery, and I think that's what we need to be doing. And I, what I the reason I say that is I want people that have like tenth acre lots that think I don't have enough room to grow food, and I really realize that they can just grow food that they could probably pick four or five trees, plants, or bushes that are really 
adapted already to their area and start propagating them, and in their propagation knowledge acquisition, begin to figure out how to make varieties. To be able to do things like say, okay, look, they say that you cross an apple and you get a crab apple, and I know that's not true because it's crap. You get an apple that may not be true to type, but what are two really good apples in my climate? And if I crossed those, what would I get? And even if you can't fit the trees on your property, to be able to go out and use isolation techniques, to put a bag around a limb once you know you, you've done this, to basically hand pollinate something like, let's say, an Erm Schimmer to a, a Golden Dorset, which are two Israeli apples. And that's probably been done already, so maybe that's not a good example, but just... You know, the, the low chill hour apples and, 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 or maybe to take something that generally has a higher chill requirement and a lower chill requirement and, and cross pollinate and know you've isolated that and mark those things so that you can pick those apples, for instance, and grow those seeds. And you'd say, well, if I grow that seed, that seed's going to take five to seven years until I'll know what it produces. And that's only if you take that approach. You could grow that into a small tree in one year. And if you graft, grafted some of the cuttings from that tree, you could do 10 of them, 10 different apples, 10 different seeds, 20 plants, 40 plants, and graft the plants onto a mature apple and let nature take its course from natural pollination on those tips, then those apples would be the same result of the propagation of that tree. Obviously, you'd have to keep very meticulous records and know which seeds were used but and, and, and not use the whole tree. Right now, we want to propagate that tree with grafts and cuttings. It would only take two years to find the results because that cutting will fruit the second year if it's grafted onto a large rooted tree. And this is how all of these varieties of apples were created, and people were creating them on an ongoing basis right up until World War II when the old manor houses went away. And that's how they got quick results. So that's something that, you know, I agree with Bennett, like working at a nursery, even part-time, working for free at a nursery, you could learn a lot, especially if they're a nursery doing propagation, not just a resale nursery. If you're going to work at a nursery where all they do is they get stuff comes in on a truck, customers come in and buy it, you're going to find that most people, not all, but most people that work in those kind of nurseries don't really know a lot, so they're not going to be able to teach you a lot. But if you get into a propagation nursery and you're just learning the techniques, if nothing else, then you can adapt the techniques. And this is a big thing with permaculture, right? You have to understand that if Jeff says one thing, like chickens break, because this was on the blog, right? But, uh, Jeff Lawton says you put chickens under fruit trees, fallen fruit hits the ground, the chickens break the pest cycle, and eat the fallen fruit and eat the maggots. And Ben says, and the two guys I respect heavily in permaculture, well, we did that. We didn't get that result from our chickens on our property. They actually, because we were trying to use them that way, were a nuisance and caused problems. Well, that seems like a conflict of fact. And that's actually what it is. It's one of the rare times that we'll ever end up with conflicts of fact. Because usually what we have are conflicts of opinion. But we know that both of these individuals are smart and switched on and well-researched and well-applied research. Both of them are reporting different results. So we know that neither one of them is lying to us or making shit up out of thin air. 
So is it a conflict of opinion or fact? Conflict of fact. Well, what's the difference? Okay. Jeff is running chickens through full-on forest permaculture systems. Large overstory trees without a lot of strip action going on as far as pasture. And he's actually pulsing the birds through the forest. And the forest is 7 to 10 years mature before those chickens are into that system. And 7 to 10 years maturity in the tropics is like 15, 20 years maturity possibly. Maybe not quite that far out. But even call it 12 years maturity in a temperate cold climate. So you've got trees that are high up, chickens that can't fly up into the canopy, chickens that can only get what falls to the ground, chickens without a lot of grass and clover, and anything that falls to the ground from a tree, a fruit, or a nut, you know damn well they're going to go in there and eat it. And if there's a maggot in there or any other pest, they're going to eat that too. Where Ben's site is more like an orchard, a permaculture orchard. Everything's a lot lower. It's easy to pick most of the fruits and stuff there. And he's got lots of grass stripped that he's pulsing birds and sheep through. And geese through now, I guess. Those are two different environments. So the reason I bring that up is, one, it was an interesting thing to point out on the blog. And the commenter that did it, I'm not putting you down. I'm saying, actually, it's a very astute observation. But the observation can be misleading if we don't apply it. So if you really want to be good at building a nursery for your area, working at a nursery is a good way to understand the operations and the techniques, but how you apply them, what will take you from being a nursery to a permaculture nursery. Now, with that said, there would also be nothing wrong with just straight propagation of really high-quality plants. When I'm looking for a GA822 jujube to put into my food forest, which I don't have one in the design now because I just learned it existed... I don't really care if the guy that produced it is a permaculturist. If I had always the option to buy from a permaculture farm that was producing or a regular you know, consumer nursery, I would go with the permaculture farm. But if I can find it and I'm looking for it, I'll buy it. Because in the end, what I do with it after I get it is more important than what was done with it to get it to me as long as it's healthy when I get my hands on it. And I'm not buying a sick tree or a stunted tree. So don't get too caught up with it being a permaculture nursery. Get more caught up with integrating permaculture thinking into your life. And when you produce a nursery, it will be a permaculture nursery, I guess is the way to say it. So anyway, that was a lot of add-on for something that I didn't really need to add on. But it, again, it's just something maybe I'll do a whole show on developing a nursery business. Um, it's something we definitely are going to do uh, with Permaethos. Uh, probably multiples of, but I don't think there's any crowded space there right now. And uh, I'm actually tomorrow morning getting up early and driving out to Lindale, Texas, to Bob Wells to pick up a huge order of stuff for our workshop uh, at the first week of April from Bob. And I'm really excited to see how his nursery works, and I'm going to take a camera out there for you guys and uh, show you what Bob's up to as well when we uh, pick up from our local supplier. Let's take another call. Actually, I've got another uh, answer to a question by Stephen Harris, but there was the, the guy emailed me instead of calling it in. I responded with saying you're supposed to call them in for the council, but I copied Steve because that's some important information on it. Turned out the caller was actually asking me the question. Steve didn't know that, so he just went ahead and did the answer. So I'm just going to play Steve's answer, and he'll kind of reiterate the question, and then I'll come back and take it. I'll just immediately take another call, and we'll go from there. Hi, this is Steve Harris with the Expert Panel calling in to answer your questions. 
Mike asked me a question actually via email. He didn't get a chance to call it in, so I'm going to read it to you. Is a liquid fertilizer given off by the methane digester process that I talked about last week enough of a reason to build and maintain a digester? So he wants to make a digester solely for the purposes of not the methane process. He's going to ignore the methane and let it go to the atmosphere. He just wants the enhanced uh, fertilizer that comes on it. So on a homestead, there are a few basic organic waste streams, manure from animals, vegetables, and gardening and kitchen scraps. These can be composted, fed to animals, or put into the digester. I understand that the liquid fertilizer given off by the process is awesome, but methane isn't absolutely necessary. It is the material better used for compost or animal feed? And he also asked, can he put human, human manure, human waste through it? The answer, Mike, to all of these is yes, okay? You can make a digester for the sole purposes of getting the fertilizer out of the other side of it. Or you can batch it. You can put it in 55-gallon drums, uh, insulate it, and let it run its process and just let the methane leak out into the atmosphere and then use the resulting uh, fertilizer that you get after three weeks. Let it run for a good three weeks. And then you can use the resultant slurry as a, a fertilizer for your garden. No, there won't be any bad bacteria in there from the human waste because in the methane digestion process, all the bad stuff gets eaten up by the good bacteria. So, yes, you can do it, Mike, and uh, I encourage you to do it. If you want more information on it, you can get Biogas Books 1 and 2 and Biogas Book 3. Just go to solar1234.com, click on the KP logo in the upper left, and then go click on the top icon on the left that says where to start once you get dropped into the knowledge publications page. This is Steve Harris. If you want to see all of the stuff I have done and I have for you for free and all the stuff I've done with Jack Spierko, simply go to Steven, S-T-E-V-E-N, 1234.com. Now, how did you know I was going to say that? Thanks, guys. Call in some more questions. I love them. Bye. Hey, Jack. This is Rob in San Diego. I got a question about the proper use of dolomite to seal around a pond drain. Some more info. Uh, I have a pond uh, that I just finished up. Uh, Don't know the actual, how much water it's actually going to hold. It's about 200 feet of shoreline total way around it um, and I have a, uh, a drain pipe at the bottom uh, six foot depth but it's uh, drains down to eight feet and uh, the walls are compacted clay track rolled in clay about 18 inches uh, in order to make the drain work out basically I had to bury the drain build the wall and then dig back in and, and get the drain to pop out on the inside um, so now I have that all open uh, I have the, the pipe added on to it uh, and I, I got a 50-pound bag of dolomite. Um, I'm just wondering the best way to go about uh, sealing around that pipe. It's already compacted and sealed through the dam wall. Uh, it's just on the inside that I have the, the pond line with clay. So like I said, about 18 inches minimum. Um, and so this pipe can be reburied with clay, but I figure since I have it all open, I, I should probably... Put a little dolomite around it as well. Um, I'm just wondering how much, uh, how deep, how to prep it. Uh, never used it before. So any help you can give, I would greatly appreciate, man. Love the show. Keep it going, man. 
Um, well, the biggest reason I made sure I took this question is I want to say this. You don't use dolomite for that. You use betonite for that. Uh, dolomite is something that will move you to the alkaline uh, side of things. If you have acidic water or acidic soil, dolomite is an amendment that will move you toward the alkaline Uh, or if you're really acidic, maybe at least towards being less acidic or, you know, moderating the acidity. Uh, so I think you're confusing dolomite with bentonite, and I don't think dolomite will do anything to seal a pond. Now, it sounds like you got a very good clay base. You've put a drain pipe in, and you want to make sure that nothing leaks around the pipe. That's a good thing. Hopefully, when you installed the pipe, you did so well. A lot of times, especially with large-volume ponds, it's recommended that you put basically these metal plates around the pipe as it passes through the dam breast so that when you open it, it helps control vibrations of the pipe, and it doesn't kind of worm its way over time to a leak. Um, so I, I don't know your pond, your construction, your material, how often this thing's going to be open to drain, how much pressure is going, how big the pipe is, and whether or not that would be necessary. But a larger installation, a, a metal bracketing system around the pipe is a good idea. Hopefully that's not necessary here, or if it was, it was done. Uh, my gut is it's a small farm pond or something like that, not necessary. Because uh, generally when you get in anything large enough to really need to do that, you're probably bringing in some expertise. Now, Using bentonite, bentonite is just another type of clay. That's all it is. It's a type of clay. And compared to something like, you know, what you'd call Georgia Red or something like that, or what we call black gumbo around here, it's a clay that's extremely able to suck up lots of moisture and expand and become really watertight. It's just really good clay in powdered form that when it gets wet becomes the sticky wonderful substance that we use for things other than ponds, for instance. When I used to do directional boring, we'd set up a machine that you'd put 10 feet of drill stick in the ground at a time, but instead of drilling down like a well, you drilled out horizontally. You could steer this thing, right? So you could actually steer it and up and down, left and right, and control its pitch and how deep it was to put cable in the ground. Well, sometimes we would drill in a place with really uh, sandy soils, where what would happen is, as you're drilling out, the hole's collapsing. And it would make it sometimes almost impossible to pull the rod back. And you'd end up having to run something called a back reamer, which really sucks. It takes a lot more time, especially when you're pulling in small material and you're in soil that was easy to drill in the first place. You're adding time, and time burns money. So what we would do is we would mix the bentonite into the water that you push through the drill to keep the head cool and keep the stem cool. And the bentonite, if mixed at the right ratio, would actually cement the bore out so that it would stay open for a long enough period of time to get the material in, and then eventually nature takes over and it would fall back in. So that's kind of my first experience with bentonite. And then I learned about its you know, pond sealing properties and all. 50 pounds of bentonite, if you had bentonite, not dolomite, mixed in with the material that you're filling around the pipe certainly couldn't hurt anything. Is it enough? I don't know, maybe a hundred pounds, two bags of it mixed in around that area would be not a real bad idea. I have seen people that have had things like this, a drain or some portion of a pond um, leaking, just broadcast, you know, a couple hundred pounds of bentonite in the general area. The suction of the pond pulling a little bit of water in starts to pull it in, it starts to build up, and I've seen it work. 
Um, so just simply adding it to the area will probably be a good insurance uh, uh, thing. The best thing to do, though, is there's companies online that sell bentonite for ceiling ponds and, and giving them a phone call and giving a quick consultation with them uh, and your specifics might be helpful. If you have really good clay, it's probably not going to be a problem anyway. It's done all the time without adding that. But again, it's cheap and it wouldn't hurt anything at all. So, uh, especially with the amount of clay, you're saying like 18 inch clay layer or something, man. I, I think you're going to be fine with that. But since you have the concern, if you don't mind, you know, using your dolomite for something else and picking up some bentonite, it might not be a bad idea. Hey, Jack. This is Kevin from Texas. Hey, uh, was listening to episode 1298, I think. Uh, thought it was kind of ironic you were going on a rant about teachers and uh, homeschool and different things that you saw in the future and uh, your prediction of uh, within the next year you'll have a company who will uh, supply a desk and uh, a workspace area for children to come into uh, once or twice a week to explore different things like chemistry, biology, things of that sort of nature. Uh, we've been homeschooling our kids for years and uh, They already have those. Uh, you predicted it, and uh, unfortunately for you, your prediction was late in one aspect. Uh, of course, you did say that you would see another company this year and it would probably turn into a franchise. Uh, but there are several companies like that throughout the United States. Uh, we go to one. We live not that far from Houston, and uh, there's one that comes to Houston on an annual basis, and our oldest daughter... Uh, Uh, well, actually, our two oldest daughters uh, go to a biology uh, course there. It's like a, if you remember in college, they had these different courses uh, that would last uh, about four weeks, two to four weeks, uh, and they were just lightning fast every day and uh, hardcore. Well, that's how these are. They do them uh, over a weekend, and they cram. Now, you have to do a bunch of prereq stuff before you get to that course, but uh, they're fantastic, and they give you a lot of hands-on stuff, but... Uh, And homeschooling is easier now because uh, when we first started, you didn't have things like being able to order a sheep's heart or a cow's heart or a crawfish or anything like that. I'm focusing on biology because that's what we're in this year for uh, my two oldest daughters. Uh, I just wanted to tell you, hey, your prediction was dead on. Uh, and I'm telling you right now, it's just going to get better and better as uh, the years go on. It's, it'll, it'll definitely be strengthened. There is a revolution going on with that, that's for sure. Thanks, bud. Um, that's awesome. And it's just proof that I'm right, even though I predicted something that already happened, I guess. And, and, and see, the thing is, I, I guess that I intrinsically knew that people did things like this already. So it's really not what I was predicting. And yeah, I said that, you know, somebody's going to franchise this. I don't know if the franchise will, will be up and running in a year, but, um, the people who will do it, the first one, um, will have their business established by this year. It might be somebody already doing it that will see that opportunity. Uh, and, and extend out from there. What I actually mean is it'll become mainstream. Not that there'll be some. That, that by the end of this year, I think, that there will be a lot more than there are now, and that we're in a very short, we're in a very short time cycle now to see these things really start to run away and blow up. That people all, I mean, so part of why I, I look at this is I look at people who don't examine things as deeply as I do. Um, people like my wife, 
who gets bored with a lot of this crap, honestly, from time to time. And I like if I go off and start talking about, she's like, I hear it every day when you're talking on the air, and I'm in my office, and I know I don't want to hear it anymore. Let's talk about something that has nothing to do with any of this stuff. I don't want to hear any more parlor culture. I don't want to hear me politics. I don't want to hear. I'm done. Let's uh, let's just go for a walk and talk about a tree and not how you can plant it. Just there it is and it's pretty. That like people like that when they start to come to me and say, well, would it be great if if my sister Marion, who's a teacher, could set up a thing where people could have their kids go to her as a teacher and and then just pay her and, and start even thinking that way. And then, you know, you look at that and say, well, financially that's difficult because for her to make enough money, you know, she can't, but then the, the process starts thinking, well, how could you make this work? As people who don't think in this revolutionary way start to just by, by, by a product of frustration think in a revolutionary way. Right, so I'm a revolutionary person, and I don't mean like I have started the Jack Spearco revolution. I mean that like that's my my personality. I have a revolutionary style of personality, meaning that I want to change things. I want to make things better. I want to be part of things like that. I be, I am a person who who believes in actual change, not hope and change. Okay, if you had change, you wouldn't need freaking hope. Okay, you wouldn't need hope if you had actual change. Just as an aside, there. When I say revolutionary, I mean okay, this is the way it's always been done. Therefore, it must always be done this way. Immediately says to me, I want to know how we can do that better. I do not care. In fact, the very fact that it's always been done that way makes me want to change it. And if I change it 15 times and I can't make it better, then I will admit that somebody got it right in the past. And until then, I will jack around with it until I figure out how to make it better. That is who I am. My wife is not that person. If it works, she's going to leave it alone. When she starts saying, we should change that, we should change that, we should change that, it's a signal that people in our society are starting to think the way that I and many of you do, not because it's intrinsic to their personality, but because they're finally going, this doesn't work. And when that happens, we call that in business an emerging market, right? And if you haven't completely cut down all of the free market, which as much as they've done to do it, they haven't. If you haven't completely killed the market... And you can't because it just turns into the black market if you try to kill it. Then when an emerging market appears, then some opportunistic individual goes, Oh, look, emerging market. I shall develop a product for that market. So the emerging market is people who are frustrated with mainstream education, people who are frustrated with the public education system, People who are frustrated with the belief that when a kid doesn't sit down for five minutes or, or more, that we immediately need to shove drugs down his throat. People that are frustrated with the status quo saying, there's got to be a better way to educate our kids because we're spending way too much money per pupil to blame money as the problem any longer. This is crap. You can't do it anymore. You can't say it's money. You guys have way too high a failure rate, and we're, we're, we're giving you more money than a, than a child can go to private school for. And that's the truth. We spend more money to put a kid through public education in most states today 
that a kid could take that money and go buy a very high-quality private education. So you can't say it's a money problem anymore. We're, we're done listening to you, and we're like, how do we solve this problem? And you might say, well, the average person's not thinking that way. It doesn't matter if average. There's 300 million people in America, right? If, if 10% feel this way, right, that's 30 million people. And if of those 30 million people, if only, let's say, 20% have kids of school age, that's 6 million people. And even if most of them are couples, it's 3 million families. That is a market. And if that's an, if you have an emerging market of 3 million families to market to, you have an incredible opportunity for growth. So my prediction is simply more in line from the prospect of looking at it as a, just a business mind. If I have this powerful of an emerging market, if people like my wife are starting to say, No, this is just not good enough anymore. It's bad for the teacher and for the student. This is no one's getting the best from this system. The good school districts are just better at being bad. I've had people tell me, uh, one guy at Liberty Forum, he wasn't really at, at the forum, he was just at the bar at the hotel and asking us what was going on. And he was like, well, yeah, I get all the, he was actually kind of free of minded anyway. And he's like, I get New Hampshire. Uh, but the reason I live down near Boston is we have better schools. And my, my question was, better at what? You know, and the guy that I talked about that kind of switched me on to a new way of thinking about anarchism, uh, there, they had like the big earrings, the ones you can see through his hole and all, the holes in your ear and all. And when I said that, this guy's face, he looked like somebody hooked him up to a smile machine and turned it up to 99.9. I mean, he was just like cranked, like he couldn't control himself with like giddiness that I asked this guy that question. And, but better at what? Indoctrination? Programming? Better at making them get test scores? Better at what? And the guy really didn't have an answer for it. So what I'm saying is that the public education system of today, even where it's doing its best, is just really good at being bad. Everybody could be better off in a new system. Now, we wouldn't need as many people in the system. And I keep harping on the fact that if you're not in the top 50% of teachers, you're toast for the next decade. Okay? But let me tell you who's really toast. Administrators. You guys are done. You guys are through. We could have, we could have a program, a, a, an internet program, do your job now. Parents will do your job now. Parents, students... And a community. And we will reinstall community education. And communities will be both these little places that I'm talking about where a kid can go to work on their history. The history lab of Sheboyganville. Right? That, that will be a place. But there will be a larger community where a student that is learning about kangaroos will be asking a student in Australia who grew up with kangaroos. What a kangaroo's really like. And that's at the kindergarten level. The world is changing, and it's about time that education caught up with it, because we're still sitting on a Prussian paradigm from the 1880s in our education system. And flatly, I don't care what part of that system you're part of, 
the system is not good enough for who we are as a people today. And it's at a point where the market is going to change the system, whether you like it or not. You can say whatever you want about tradition, and you can say whatever you want about the nobility of teachers, and they're all heroes. And you can whine and cry to me about teachers who buy Kleenex out of their own pocket, and I'll tell you that I have never heard anybody really make a case to me as to why a child needs a Kleenex to learn and why anybody should pay for any Kleenex for anyone other than the snotty-nosed person or the, the parent or family member of the person with the snotty nose. And I don't think you should be buying Kleenex for your students, and I don't care that you are if you are. None of that matters. The world is changing. And that means the way that we learn must change. And only government has prevented education from changing for so long because it's in government's best interest that education remain a place for indoctrination rather than enlightenment. But you can only hold back natural progression for so long. The human being is experiencing right now, due to the sheer accessibility of in information available, a mental evolution and you have as much chance of stopping that as a priest did who was standing in front of a glacier during the, the little ice age and chanting prayers to stop the glacier the glacier was going to move then and humanity is going to move now let's take another call hi Jack this is uh, Patrick calling from Ontario Canada Rupter on the forums I have a question for expert council member Darby Simpson When selecting cattle to start up a herd, how important are genetics specifically to the taste of the beef? Uh, my wife and I have started a farm up in Canada, and thanks to yourself and Darby, whose services I've used, we're now selling chickens and pork to customers. I would like to get into beef cattle as well, but as with all meats we sell, our primary goal is for family consumption. So with that said... We have purchased local grass-fed beef before, and I found it to be very strong-tasting uh, or have a very strong flavor. And I hate the word gamey because I hunt, and my wife and I both like venison and moose, but I, I hear people refer to it as that term. Um, you know, the, the flavor is very strong, and I keep reading how some people say genetics play a big part of that, while others do not even seem to mention it. I, I seem to remember Joel Salatin saying that uh, he selected his Uh, cattle for other considerations besides um, uh, besides taste, like birthing and, and all those kinds of things. Uh, some other considerations that I want um, um, that that I have are that we want to build a herd so that um, I'm not buying just one cow to raise for the summer and then butcher. Um, winters are long here, and hay is at a premium. So, um, you know, how much does age play a part of that? I.e., can we raise a cow in 18 months and still have a taste good? Um, because obviously the 18 months would save us that second winter of hay. Uh, from what I understand, the smaller breeds will mature out, if that's the right term, uh, better in a shorter time. Anyways, um, I know I crammed a couple of questions in there, but uh, um, they're somewhat related, and Darby's awesome, so I know he can handle it. Keep up the great work, Jack, and um, I hope to meet you soon one day at one of your workshops. Thanks so much. Hey Jack, this is Darby Simpson with the Expert Council calling in to answer Patrick's question about raising grass-fed beef. Patrick's first question that he mentioned in his call 
was he wanted to know about the taste of the cattle and whether or not genetics uh, play a role in, in the flavor of the animals. And from my experience, uh, yes, genetics do play a role in it, but the other side of that is that diet also plays a role in it. So, um, my, you know, we've had several different uh, breeds of cattle on our farm. Uh, we're still not uh, building our own herd. We're not breeding and so we have just bought cows out of systems that match what we are doing. And so we've had an opportunity to, um, to sample, if you will, a number of different breeds of cattle. And quite frankly, they all do have a, a distinct taste. And, um, you know, that plays a, a part in it. And it kind of boils down to what you like and what you don't like. Um, so really the only way to, to know what you're going to like and, and not like is if you go out and buy some stocker calves from somebody is to see if they have any samples of meat uh, that you can get before you purchase the animals and give it a taste and see what you think. Um, the other part of that is, like I said, what it eats plays a difference. And we want lots of, of um, you know, good uh, legumes and grasses and clovers that are going to help the animals grow fast so they get good marbling. And, but also uh, I have found that I think clover makes a really big difference in the taste of the beef because it's a sweet aromatic plant. And so I have as much of that growing as possible in all of my pastures. Um, the first thing I would say to Patrick, though, is that you should not start out trying to build a herd. Um, you know, finances are a one-shot deal. You really don't know what you want. You don't have that experience yet. And it's expensive to get, you know, some good cattle. I mean, it's really expensive. You're talking big boy money to, uh, to go out and buy breeding stock that you can then build a herd with. Uh, so I would say that the first thing you need to do is to learn and get some experience. And um, I would do this by telling you to do what we did. And we just went out and bought some animals initially that were like nine to 12 months old. And we grazed them for a season and we kept them for one winter. And then we grazed them for another season. And by the end of that second year, when they were about two and a half years old, they were done. We could take them to market. Um, things that you would want to look for in terms of going out and buying soccer animals, um, you know, special emphasis should really be given to breeds that gain weight without feeding of grains. Um, you, what you want to do is you want to look for systems to buy animals from that are grass-only systems. And it really honestly doesn't matter, like, what the breed is. Like, if they've been breeding and they've had a closed herd for a while uh, and they're breeding for grass-based genetics, that's what you're after. You want to look for small-framed, short, fat, wide cattle. Uh, and another thing you want to look for beyond the physical attributes is you want cattle who are really docile and easy to handle. This is really important in, in a uh, rotational grazing system. Um, personally, I, I like to give preference also to red skin cattle over black skin cattle. Um, a conference I attended a couple of years ago that Greg Judy spoke at, he uh, showed a study uh, where they measured the skin temperature of a red-skinned animal and a black-skinned animal at the same time on the same day in the same location. And I think the ambient temperature was about like 95 degrees. And I'm kind of shooting from the hip here on my memory, but I want to say that like the red-skinned animals, like their skin temperature was like 102 or 104 or something like that. And the black-skinned animals were like 137. And the reason this makes a difference is because if the animal's cooler, he's going to get up and go eat earlier in the afternoon, he's going to graze longer, he's going to eat more grasses. 
just a little something to consider, but I wouldn't not buy black cattle because, you know, of that color variation. If they are coming out of a system that looks good to you, then by all means get them. Um, you want to try and acquire animals direct from a breeder who, you know, has some highly valued stock. Try and avoid stockyards at all costs. You just don't know what you're going to get. You might get really lucky. And you might get really hosed by buying animals at a stockyard. So try and look for farms that you can purchase from directly. And like I said, they should come out of a grass-only system. Um, and you want to buy them as close to home as you can. I mean, there's nothing wrong with going a couple hundred miles if you have to, or however many kilometers that is in Canada. <laughs> um, but you want to buy them as close to home as possible. And here, here's why. Uh, the, the grasses that you have and the legumes and the forbs that you have on your farm are going to be predominant like in your geographic region. So the farther away from home you get, the more diverse the plant life can be. And when, so if they've been eating, you know, a, a different set of gla- uh, grasses and forbs and stuff and they're, you know, 500 miles away and then you, you bring them into Ontario and they start eating something totally different, that can really have an effect. Also, uh, cattle, like any animals, they will like micro evolve. So if, if you happen to find some farm that's like, you know, 50 or 100 miles from your place and they've got this awesome, you know, grass based, uh, system and they've got good genetics and you're thinking, man, this looks great. Those are the cattle you want to go after because they will have micro evolved on the grasses that you're going to have on your farm. So there's not going to be, uh, any, you know, issues with uh, trying to get them to eat something they're not used to. And this really is a bigger deal. Like if you're talking about, uh, you know, like in my, you know, here, you know, I want to buy cows in central Indiana. So if I go out west, like I'm trying, for some reason, I'd go out to like Kansas or, or Colorado or something and get genetics out there and then bring them back here, they might do okay. But it's really better if I can just get them as close to home as possible. Um, so, you know, there are a few different breeds you can you can consider, um, it, but really, like you can find the best breed for cattle in the whole world. But if they're on a grain-based diet and you're wanting to do a grass-only system, then you know what's the point? But some some breeds that you can kind of check out and pay special attention to would be like Red Angus, Red Devon, Herefords, uh, Galloways. Belted Galloways, South Poles, if you have any of those up in Canada, those are predominantly here, like in the South and a little bit in the Midwest. And then uh, some of the different shorthorns, too. But again, you're looking for short, fat, wide animals, grass-based system. That's what you want, and that's what you want to start with, and that's what I'd tell you to do before you buy any breeding stock. Um, You asked, you know, can you raise a cow in only 18 months from start to finish on grass? No, at least not you know, decent sized ones. I, I don't know about the little miniature breeds. I don't really have any experience with those. Most grass based systems to get a cow to really finish, to get it filled out to, you know, so it looks good and it's done. You're going to need 24 to 30 months. So if you go in the spring, like in March or April and you buy some calves that were born nine months ago, and then again, you graze them this year and then you keep them over the winter, minimize your hay inputs and you graze them again next year and finish them. That's what you want to go for. That's what I would tell you to, uh, to do and to start with, and yeah, that's worked really well for us here, and so much so that you know we've got a waiting list for beef, and it's something we want to scale up, and we're we're trying hard to do that. And there's definitely way more demand than there is production out there for local 100% grass-fed and finished 
be. So those are my thoughts, Patrick. I hope that that has uh, been helpful for you. And I want to say good luck to you and your cattle ventures, but just get out there get some good-looking animals and get some experience and just kind of get the knowledge down and sort of figure out rotational grazing. That takes years to really master. I heard somebody say one time that it takes 10 to 12 years to really master rotational grazing, and I'm going into my fifth year, and I would say that I pretty well agree with that. Like I just now kind of feel like I'm starting to get decent at it. So anyway, to learn more about me, please visit my website at darbysimpson.com. You can sign up for my uh, free blog email list if you would like, or you can just peruse the articles I have out there. Uh, there are all kinds of different things out there relating to raising grass-fed beef, pastured pork, uh, pastured chickens, um, doing some equipment reviews now. So there's just really a, a myriad of things out there to, uh, to read uh, also, if you uh, find that you need more help than those free articles, I'm available to do a one-on-one consultation. You can fill out the form on the website there as well. I'd like to point out that MSB members do get an additional 10% discount, and you get a 10% discount if you pay up front too. So all in all, you could get 20% off of that, that fee. Also, would like to mention that our next Midwest Sustainable uh, Education Conference is coming up in Western Kentucky at the end of March on the 22nd and 23rd. To learn more about that, please go out to MidwestSustainable.org. Jack, thanks so much for letting me call in and tackle another question. Take care. Hi, Jack. Robert in Indiana here. I have a question for yourself or Brian Black at ITS Tactical regarding rifle scopes. How much advantage is there to having a zoom function to your scope? I'm having trouble deciding between a POSP 4x24 or a POSP 2x6x24 with the zoom function. Uh, in lieu of a previous call-in show, I like the idea of streamlining and redundancy and function stacking in a particular cartridge platform. In this sense, what might be a better choice for something like a Saiga 760x39 stock rifle with a 21-inch barrel to be used for hunting game, varmints, the four- or two-legged variety, or when you just want to reach out and touch something? Uh, just kind of browsing, going to optics, wondering about pros and cons. Any thoughts would be appreciated. Thanks. Uh, okay, I'm not really sure exactly what you're asking. It sounded like um, you're asking actually about the difference between a variable and a fixed power scope. But since you used the term zoom, I'm not sure if you actually are asking about a... A, 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 a true scope with zoom on it. Like Pentax has a scope that basically it's a variable power scope that works electronically that you can, without putting the weapon down and without coming out of a firing position, zoom the scope. I'm not sure what one you're asking. Based on what I think you said for the, the first one you're choosing between the two, and I, I couldn't tell if you were saying PST or what the model number was, but it sounded like you said um, it was a fixed power scope because it was uh, 6x24 or 4x24, one or the other, where the other was like a you know 6 to 12 or 4 to 6 or 4 to 12, whatever it was. All right, so I'm going to answer the question two totally different ways. If you're talking about these newfangled electronic zoom-in scopes where they zoom in with a button, I don't like it because it's one more thing to fail. Uh, and I just don't feel like they've been around long enough to be proven well enough, and I don't see the point. I may change my mind on that. I reserve the right to be wrong about that. I reserve the right to be wrong about anything, by the way. But I really reserve... 
I, the truth of the matter is I have not looked into those types of scopes enough to give you a full professional opinion on them. I do think you're asking me about a variable versus a fixed power. Here's the deal with that. I have nothing against variable power scopes. I primarily recommend a fixed power scope for a short-range weapon, like a .22 long rifle, for squirrel hunting. You are not going to reach way out there with a .22. You're not going to do it. 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 Well, I know this guy, and he made one for shooting ground squirrels, and he shoots them at 300 yards. Okay, that's a specialized tool. And, and they're fun, and there's nothing wrong with them, and they're awesome. And I, I've actually heard of this thing, and I would love to shoot it. And it's fine for what it is. But a .22 is a 100-yard tool. A four-power scope is everything that you need in a 100-yard tool. And as we increase magnification on a scope, we reduce what's called field of view. So a low-power scope, something like a four-power, gives us a very a pretty wide field of view, even at like 25 yards, which makes picking things out, finding targets a little bit easier. Where if we have a very narrow field of view, you better see exactly what you're bringing the scope up, which you kind of should anyway, before you do it. I believe that when it comes to trying to look for game and spot game in the woods, you want a good low-power type of binocular, like a loophole six-power binocular, eight-power binocular, about as high as I would go, even four-power binoculars, um, are really great for that type of like timber hunting. As you move out into the plains and, and into fields, now you're moving up to maybe an 8 to 10 power binocular. You're getting a really long distance. I think that's where spotting scopes start to really make sense. For where you can really, you know, you're, you're spotting out a half a mile to two miles. Um, or, or further in some instances. And then making your decision about what to go after. Those are all different worlds. On a rifle. The big issue I have with these high-power variable scopes, when you start getting up into like 12 and 16 power, I think you're just getting to a point of ridiculousness. If you don't have a weapon capable of making 1,000-yard shots, you don't really have call for a scope that would be used for that purpose. So when you increase the power of a scope you almost inevitably increase the size of the scope, and therefore you increase the weight of the scope. So I prefer to keep things into a reasonable range. And I find for most hunting applications that the most popular thing out there and most affordable thing out there throughout the multitude of, of, of what's available from low to high-end scopes is a 3-9. to nine. A 3-9 to nine gets you pretty far down on one side, and pretty far up on the other side. I've seen quite a few two to two two to seven powers. Those are fine too. I have nothing against variable scopes at all. I just think you can get ridiculous. And I think unless you're building a custom long range rifle, going much over nine power is pretty much on the unnecessary. The trade-off in the size and weight of the scope and the increase in the cost and the increase in the complexity and the increase in potential for failure in low-end scopes and cost in high-end scopes is not worth it. It's not that it doesn't bring anything to the table. It's for cost and weight, is it worth the increase? 
Um, that said, if you were building a really high-end custom long-range rifle and wanted to put a scope with a little bit more power on it, I get that. I get that. But, I, I mean, really, six power at hunting ranges out to about 300 yards on game the size of deer and up is really all, he, all that anyone needs. And it's easy to tell yourself, no, it's not, But then again, when I was in the army, they taught us to sh they taught us to shoot targets that were equivalent to the size of a man from his belly button to the top of his head with no arms, with iron sights, and it was dramatically easy to do if you got good at your craft. It was almost shocking how easy it was to do. 250 meters was really easy. The only reason I had a problem consistently hitting with iron sights at 300 meters was I really don't have the eyesight for it. And what I would actually do is I would see the target move when it came up and I would know where the target was because I saw it move when it came up and when I put the sight on it, I actually couldn't see the target. And I was still able to most often hit a 300 meter target with an AR with iron sights where I really couldn't see the target when I was taking the shot. So if you put a six power scope on that, At that point, if you're not able to make a 300-yard shot with a rifle capable of it, with something in the neighborhood of 4 to 9 power, putting more power on it is not going to change your lack of marksmanship. Anyway, let's take another call. Hello, Jack. This is Jared from Michigan. My question is regarding starting Osage orange trees from seed. So last fall, we picked up several of the Osage orange, the big lumpy green thing and now I want to know how to start trees uh, from those seeds. I like to start them in some kind of pot or something so that I know what I'm getting, know what it looks like and can plant them where I want them. Thank you. Goodbye. I'm learning more and more this year about starting trees from seed as I experiment and play with different things like acacias and mimosas and lucena uh, and I'll actually tell you guys a little secret that I learned about doing lucena which has a notoriously Uh, low germination rate at the end of this segment because it's kind of cool that I figured it out by accident. Osage orange, though, is a very easy tree to start from seed. If you look around, it grows all over the place all by itself. Um, you get these big, you know, Osage oranges or horse apples or whatever else you call them, and they're, they're not poisonous, but you wouldn't eat one. They're, they're not good tasting at all. And they're really sticky and they have lots of seeds in them. And honestly, if you didn't want to start them in a pot or something and then move them, you could probably take this approach. You could probably just leave them out in the cold in a pile somewhere and around spring come bury the oranges just under the ground wherever you want a tree to grow and a whole bunch of little seedlings will sprout out of there and you know, whichever one kind of takes off will probably choke out its brothers and win and you could aid that along by just cutting out the competitors. And it could be that easy. Um, if you want to start them from seed and kind of shepherd them along, I totally understand that. Uh, my question then would be, how cold does it get where you are and where were they all winter long? If you had them stored in a basement or something and they didn't really get that cold or like in a bucket inside the house and they didn't really get that cold, you may need to do some cold stratification. Uh, Osage Orange does have a cold stratification requirement. I've read that it's anywhere between 30 days or 90 days of cold stratification at refrigerator temperatures. Um, if you have a typical winter and it was outside, eh, you, you, nature's done it for you. If not, you may need, once you get their seeds, out to actually put them into something like damp straw. 
put a lid on a jar of straw, put your seeds in there, throw them in the refrigerator, and they could eat anywhere from 30 to 90 days. I don't know one or the other is a fact. If you don't want to wait for it, you can do what I'm going to tell you to do next. You can take some seeds and put them aside and stratify them, and you can try to germinate your other ones and see if it matters. And that way, if you do need to stratify, you can start your stratification right away. And if you don't, you haven't wasted time waiting on something you don't need to do. And as many seeds as come out of one orange, that's what I would do. Okay, now there's a lot of ways to get the seeds out of there, but it's sticky, messy stuff. I mean, it's like playing with pine sap, kind of, to get the stuff out of them. So the easiest thing that you can do, again, is leave them out for the winter. They'll get really kind of rotted over the winter. And then take the whole fruit and just put it in a bucket of water for a couple days. And you can do that even if they're not rotted. And it, it, Either way, it'll work. It'll work a little better if they've been out and kind of rotted a little bit. And basically, the fruit will fall apart and the seeds will come out. And you can sort your seeds out of there. And then, like I said, either stratify them or go ahead and plant them. That's really it. Now, some things you could do to improve your germination and your space ratios and things, uh, as far as how much space and allocation you're using for them. Take all your seeds that you want to germinate. Take more than you want to germinate because they're not all going to germinate. Put them on a paper towel. Fold the paper towel in half, and I mean like three or four layers on top and bottom, and wet it down. And then put it somewhere kind of warm, 70 degrees, room temperature is pretty good. But remember, evaporation lowers temperatures. So if it's just sitting in the open evaporating, it'll lower the temperature. So put it like in a Ziploc bag, but don't Ziploc it. That'll slow evaporation down. And keep an eye on it, because if it dries out, that's not good while you're trying to germinate your seeds. Keep it damp. And eventually you'll start to see sprouts form. Roots will come out of the seeds before any topside. And then take the seeds that sprout and plant those. And this is what I've been doing with my apple seeds, my lucena seeds, my um, my, my uh, mimosa seed and stuff like that. And it, it, what it means is I'm only planting viable seed in my containers. So I'm not waiting for a couple of weeks. And like, is it gonna sprout? Because it sprouts much faster, kept at a warm temperature. Like something else you could do is set, you know, a heating pad on your lowest setting and, and set it, you know above your heating pad. I don't know if I'd set it on there, but maybe lift it up a little bit off and set it up like a plate and then a couple things and above a heating pad or a heating surface or like an underheating surface for like a reptile tank. Uh, anything like that. I know some people have done very quick germinations by using cheap incubators like the Hovabator uh, when they're not using it to incubate eggs and setting the temperature in there like 80 degrees or 80, 75 degrees. Most seeds germinate really well between 70 and 80 degrees, really fast. Seeds will germinate at low temperatures, but the warmer up to a point where it starts to become too warm, the faster. So if you had a germination chart, With a, with a line graph, you'd see it really, really low, really, really low, and it would start to come up, start to come up, start to come up, and as you went up to 50 degrees, it would, you know, and as you get up into the 70s, you get an exponential curve and increase in germination speed, not rate, speed, right? Seed will germinate just fine at 55 degrees usually. Most seeds, not all, but most. But you'll have 21 days, 30 days to germinate, where you keep seed at like 72 degrees, a lot of times it will germinate in two or three days. So if you're germinating your seed out in your greenhouse and it's warm at daytime, cool at nighttime, warm at day, cool at nighttime, or something like that, you might have a lot longer germination period. But if you get them sprouted, so you've broken that germination, put them into your whatever you're going to grow your seed in. And I love the containers, by the way. You can Google that, container, C-O-N-E-T-A-I-N-E-R, container. Um, I love those for doing my trees in. 
If you have them already sprouted, then you're going to get off to a good start. That taproot's going to go down in your container, and it's going to start growing really, really fast. So I would consider doing that with your Osage Orange. Now the Lucena. Marjorie Wildcraft finally, after three years of promising, sent me some Lucena seed, and I felt like crap because I thought I ruined it. With Now, you don't have to do this with Osage Orange, but with seeds that are hard legume seeds, often they have a stratification issue that's different. So seeds have ways to inhibit their own germination so they don't germinate at the wrong time. The cold thing we just talked about is so an apple or a pear or an Osage Orange doesn't fall off a tree, get you know, somehow busted open and touch the soil, immediately germinate, and then this freezing comes in and kills it. Now, even though the apple or the Osage Orange can handle frost, when it's a little bitty seedling, it can't handle it be it can't handle freezing. It needs to establish itself over a season so that then when the frost comes in it drops its leaves and it can go dormant and come back. Alright? So it says, I will not germinate until I've been cold long enough to know that the winter is over. It has that intrinsic intelligence. Well legumous seeds will often need to have something like an animal eat them. And they'll pass through the ruminant of an animal or through the crop of a bird, and some of them will pass all the way through and be pooped out. And that way they'll distribute, because they want to, they want to, they're pioneers, they want to go forth and they want to pioneer. And when they pass through an animal, they'll get scarified, right? Which means there'll be some scratches in them, and this will let the water in. And we can emulate that by taking them and rubbing them with some sandpaper, which is slow and tedious. If we're going to do a whole bunch, we can boil some water, put them in a jar, and dump the hot water over them. And that will often break that scarification and let the seed swell up. Just like when you make dried beans and you want to do it quick, right? You put them in a pot of hot, you put them, you put them in a pot, you bring the water to boiling, you kill it, and they're ready to start cooking in an hour instead of soaking them overnight. Well, think of them as being much drier and harder to get water into than a bean that you eat. That's like a locust seed, for instance. It's like that. Or a lucena seed. Or a, some acacia seeds are like that. So you do this boiling water trick, and the next day, a lot of them are kind of swelled up, and those are the ones you would normally plant. And you can then take the ones that didn't swell up and repeat the process. Boil the water And then don't, don't put them in the water and boil them, right? You can kill them that way. You know, dump your cold water out of your jar. Ball jar's good for this because it won't crack when they say with hot water, unless you've got it ice cold or something. Boil your water, take it off the boil, let it come down in temperature a few degrees and not be boiling anymore, and dump it into the jar and leave them sit again. And maybe the next day some more will swell up. And pretty much it's always been decided that after that, you don't know what's going to happen. And with Lucena, even a lot of the stuff that Would, ger would swell up, may not germinate. So here's what happened. And I happened, I, I would love to tell you I'm just a genius. I'm not a genius. I got lucky. So we had this battery backup workshop. And I went and was dumb. And I said, I got to get this Lucena started that Marjorie sent me. So I put it in the jar and I poured the hot water on it on the Wednesday that people were showing up. And I was going to do some germination and stuff with people at the workshop. And then it went into file 13 in my brain, which is a, you know, a, an office term for the garbage. And I forgot I even did it. In fact, we even, uh, germinated some senna, or actually I showed the people how to do the, the car, the, uh, sandpaper and water trick with the senna, which is another type of legume, a little legume, annual legume. And I forgot all about this lucena. 
And then on Sunday morning, after everybody left and everything's a mess and you're cleaning up, I come back in my office and I look and there's the jar. And there's just the Lucena seeds and they've been sitting in the jar since Wednesday. So it's Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, five days. And I'm like, ugh, what have I done? And then I'm like, I'm just dead after these events. So like, I didn't even do anything about it Monday. And on Tuesday, I thought, you know, you blew it, Jack. Marjorie finally sang the seeds. You did them all at once and they're screwed up. There's no way they could possibly be healthy now. And I said, well, I'm not just going to bet on that. And I'm not also going to fill up a bunch of containers with them, right? I'm going to see. So I took the paper towel like I'm talking about, and I put the seeds on the paper towel. And I got about a 60% germination rate instead of 10. That is massive. That's not like, you know, six times. That's, that's hundreds of percentiles better. If you went to 20%, it would be a 100% increase, right? So, I mean, this is a massive increase in germination. And I really think that if you just watched the seeds, instead of constantly reboiling them, and like on the second day took all the fat ones and put them in a paper towel to germinate and just left the little ones and kept doing that, and that way some of the ones that were ready to go, because there were some big fat ones that, like you could tell, like they were just mush inside. It waited too long. So I think if you were pulling out the swole, the swollen ones and paper towel, you know, bursting the root out of them, that it would work even better. So there you go. There's a whole bunch on starting trees more than you asked. Uh, starting trees is a good thing because, as I'm fond of saying, when old men plant trees under whose shade they will never, they know they will never sit. That's when a society prospers. We all need to be planting more trees, whether it's planting trees in the ground by digging a hole and putting a started tree in there, or planting from seed. Um, it's, it's, it's time to start repairing a lot of the damage that we've done over the years and it's time to start being responsible for ourselves and feeding ourselves and for our own building materials and trees are a great way to do that uh, we can cut trees uh, sustainably if we're planting enough of them and if we're taking care of them uh, please think about that over the weekend think about that as we head into spring and time to start doing your planting and instead of just planting the, that, that garden think about planting some trees that will feed and nourish you both with food and spiritually into the future that will be left behind for future generations. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. There's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess And we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way
nobody up there cares They're living for today Yeah.